second part of our 9-11 bulletin feature, Clinton's War on Terror. And if you didn't catch part one, uh, you can find it at mediaroots.org or on soundcloud.com slash media-roots. Uh, it's the second to last episode we have up. The last episode was Abby's firsthand account of her experience at Guantanamo Bay, covering the, the trials that are happening there right now. But we're just going to launch right back into Clinton's War on Terror, starting with the Kobar Towers bombing. On June 25th, 1996, 19 American airmen were killed while they slept at the Kobar Towers complex in Saudi Arabia. The terrorist bombing injured more than 500 others. No concrete leads have been established. A Saudi dissident was believed to have been involved in the blast, but the case against him fell apart when he reneged on a plea bargain agreement and insisted he had no information on the bombing. And this is from Wikipedia. It was, quote, a terrorist attack on part of a housing complex in the city of Kobar, Saudi Arabia, located near the national oil company, Saudi Aramco. And this would be the first in a string of late 90s terrorist attacks that all sort of occurred outside the United States, but were later reported to be from al-Qaeda or bin Laden himself. But what was interesting about this terrorist attack is since it took place in Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of information out there that not only the U.S. government, but the Saudi Arabian government and the U.S. government coordinated together to blame Iran for the attack, instead taking the focus away from, which at the time was Saudi Arabian government support, financial support of bin Laden and al-Qaeda. From Wikipedia, it says that on June 25th, 2009, Gareth Porter published an article on the website antiwar.com stating that the that blaming Iran for the Kobar Towers bombing was a false leak released by U.S. officials and Saudi diplomats as sourced by the Washington Post article. This gesture, as reported by Porter, was a face-saving gesture to the Saudi Arabian government for their complicity in allowing Osama bin Laden to target U.S. military targets by using charities based in Saudi Arabia for funding purposes, as long as bin Laden did not target the government of Saudi Arabia. And in this case, apparently he did. Um, this was an attack that took place in Saudi Arabia. But people don't mention that, that the Kobar Towers bombing was along the similar veins of the African embassy bombings or the bombings of the U.S. coal, simply because the United States had a coordinated leak to take the focus away from al-Qaeda and bin Laden because of the Saudi connection. On July 17, 1996, TWA Flight 800 crashes, and counterterrorism funding is boosted in response. Now, TWA Flight 800 crashed off of the coast of Long Island, New York. Uh, 230 people died. Um, and History Commons 
has an entry about this that says, quote, the cause of the crash is debated for a long time afterward, and terrorism is considered a possibility. With this accident in mind, President Clinton requests and Congress approves over $1 billion in counterterrorism-related funding in September 1996. Now, I'm very ignorant on this subject, so I'm not really going to spend too much time talking about it, but just thought that was that was a noteworthy event that sort of started to fill Americans' heads with the idea of domestic terrorism. On July 27, 1996, someone bombs the Atlanta Olympics in the U.S. So this is more quote-unquote terrorism happening inside the United States. Jewel is targeted by FBI investigators, and he is identified as, quote, a person of interest. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And what was really interesting about this is this is kind of an early proto-Stephen Hatfield-style experience. We have had word now of an explosion. A bombing at Atlanta's Summer Olympics. Total chaos, mass pandemonium going on down here. Led to a massive law enforcement investigation. We will consider it an act of terrorism. And soon set off a frenzy of speculation. Who is the real Richard Jewell? FBI officials believe he fits a profile of the type of person who might commit such an act, but concede they have no hard evidence against him. And if anyone's a listener out there of Media Roots, you'll remember our talks about the anthrax attacks in 2001. Um, there were a lot of bizarre circumstances surrounding those attacks. Uh, a lot of information out there to suggest that there might have even been inside involvement in those attacks. But Stephen Hadfield was falsely accused for over a year and a half. His reputation was destroyed. The Justice Department kept saying that he was a person of interest with no charges and no evidence. And then eventually he sued the Justice Department and won $6 million in a settlement for the emotional um, harm that it caused him and his, uh, his loved ones and stuff. So this guy Richard Jewell was falsely implicated in the bombings for like multiple weeks. I think maybe even, actually, no, it was more than a, a few weeks. Uh, Richard Jewell said, quote, For 88 days I lived in a nightmare. History Commons goes on to say, investigators later learned that two drunken young men rousted by Jewel had attended to steal the backpack containing the bomb and carry it with them into a nearby nightclub. It was later found out to be an anti-abortion activist, apparently. Um, it wasn't anybody Middle Eastern, just a typical old white guy. White guy, um, so I guess, I don't know. I don't know what you would call that. On August 14th, 1996, the term Al-Qaeda is first used in the U.S. media. And this is from History Commons. And I'm, I haven't actually looked this up myself because I, I don't understand how to get access to the LexisNexis database. So if any listeners out there know how to get access to it, already have access to it, and can share their login, um, please contact me on Twitter at Fluorescent Gray or at info at MediaRoots.org. Um, History Commons says, based on a review of the LexisNexis database, the term Al-Qaeda is first mentioned in the mainstream media on this day. A United Press International article draws from a State Department fact sheet released. The fact sheet says, 
Earlier during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden drew on his family's wealth, plus donations received from sympathetic merchant families in the Gulf region to organize the Islamic Salvation Foundation, or Al-Qaeda. And it's spelled A-L-Q-A-I-D-A, which is a different spelling than the U.S. government would use later on. But in August 23rd, 1996, bin Laden officially declares jihad against the United States. Quote, from Wikipedia, he signs and issues a declaration of jihad from Afghanistan entitled, Message from Osama bin Laden to his Muslim brothers in the whole world, and especially in the Arabian Peninsula. Declaration of jihad against the Americans occupying the land of the two holy mosques. Expel the heretics from the Arabian Peninsula. People just jumping into the podcast at at this moment. That's not my. That's not a quote from me. That's a quote from Osama bin Laden talking about expelling the heretics. More interesting Taliban U.S. relations happening in the background um, around September 1996 from History Commons. Journalist sees U.S. and Taliban combating Russia over Central Asian pipeline issue. Ahmed Rashid, a correspondent for the Far Eastern Economic Review and Daily Telegraph, conducts extensive investigative research in Afghanistan after the Taliban conquest of Kabul. As he will later write in his 2000 book, he sees a, quote, massive regional polarization between the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the Taliban on one side, and Iran, Russia, and the Central Asian states and the anti-Taliban alliance on the other. While some focused on whether there was a revival of the old CIA-ISI connection from Afghanistan, it became apparent to me that the strategy over pipelines had become the driving force behind Washington's interest in the Taliban, which in turn was prompting a counter-reaction from Russia and Iran. But exploring this was like entering a labyrinth where nobody spoke the truth or divulged their real motives or interests. It was the job of a detective rather than a journalist because there were few clues. Policy was not being driven by politicians and diplomats, but by the secretive oil companies and the intelligence services of the regional states. So that's a pretty big revelation that sort of implies that, you know, everyone points to the obvious uh, war for oil in terms of Iraq. But when it comes to Afghanistan, I mean, besides Michael Moore and a few other mainstream journalists, that side of Afghanistan is barely explored by anyone in the mainstream media to this day. On October 7th, 1996, Fox News premiered its channel for the very first time. The channel premiered with three flagship shows, and those were The Cryer Report, hosted by Katherine Cryer, Hannity and Combs, and The O'Reilly Report, now called The O'Reilly Factor, debuted in 17 million households. I, w- I want to ask now, when we talk about Milosevic here in Yugoslavia, they, cl- they say they're gathering evidence against them for war crimes. The issue at, at hand here, we, we see these pictures of these innocent civilians, these victims, uh, casualties of war. And the president says today, well, this is an in- inevitable if you're going to be involved in this type of conflict. Here we have the Serbs just a few years ago were the victims of ethnic cleansing. But this sounds like one of the most ill-conceived military missions I've right. ever heard of. Yeah, it's Nintendo war-making at the worst. It was essentially spearheaded by ex-Nixon advisor Roger Ailes. So when people point the finger at Rupert Murdoch for being like a crazy right-winger um, Republican guy, 
he merely hired someone else who was of that ideology to spearhead the network. I mean, Rupert Murdoch is at, a, at his core a um, oligarch who is just interested in making money. Um, and now he, of course, invests in vice media. Early 1997, um, this is when it just becomes extremely uh, hard to believe that the United States or, or the Israeli government couldn't find a, a good time or a good means to assassinate or capture Osama bin Laden. In early 1997, CNN actually conducts a on-the-scene interview with Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan after his declaration of jihad against the United States. We begin with the story of a shadowy multimillionaire who has declared a holy war against the United States. To some in the Islamic world, he is a hero. To the United States government, though, he is a terrorist, a real threat to the lives of U.S. troops. He is Osama bin Laden, and Impact's Peter Arnett takes us into his hideaway and into his mind with this first-ever television interview. Amidst these remote mountains of Afghanistan are the various hiding places of one of the world's most wanted men, Osama bin Laden. We declared a jihad, a holy war, against the United States government. Osama bin Laden tells Peter Bergen, quote, unjust, criminal, and tyrannical. The U.S. today, as a result of the arrogant atmosphere, has set a double standard, calling whoever goes against its injustice as terrorist. It wants to occupy other countries, steal our resources, impose on us agents to rule us. Bin Laden also tells Bergen that Arab holy warriors trained in Afghanistan had banded with Somali Muslims in October 1993 to kill 18 U.S. soldiers in Mogadishu, Somalia. Incredibly, this interview was conducted with no danger. I mean, really, the, the, the CNN camera crew, they were able to somehow get access to Osama bin Laden, interview him for over two to three hours, and then leave unimpeded which to me is just very strange. And he's there admitting or, or supposedly admitting to being involved in the, the Somalia, what they call, um, uh, which that movie Black Hawk Down was made about. In February 1997, according to U.S. court documents, this is from History Commons again, bin Laden orders the militarization of East African cell of Al-Qaeda, a move that culminated in the bombings of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania which we'll, we'll discuss a little bit later. And we'll also discuss how the NSA had ample foreknowledge to prevent that bombing. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that they let that bombing occur. And when I say they, I mean the Clinton administration and the U.S. intelligence apparatus let it occur. Lehop, let it happen on purpose. Um, later in November 1997, a study group that predicts the consequences of catastrophic terrorism. So future 9-11 commissioner Jamie Gorlick and Philip Zelikow were part of this fairly small panel of people that were writing about predictions of catastrophic terrorism. And I'm just going to read a long quote. Um, it doesn't, it, it was a, a condensed version of the report is published in the Journal of Foreign Affairs in late 1998. And the report is attributed to a bunch of different people, but I think we can safely say that because of Philip Zelikow's academic history and his writing career that had already been well-established, 
that he probably wrote these exact words, although I can't 100% prove that he did, but I'm going to read you a quote from the conclusions of the report. Quote, long part of the Hollywood and Tom Clancy repertory of nightmarish scenarios, catastrophic terrorism has moved from far-fetched horror to a contingency that could happen next month. Although the United States still takes con conventional terrorism seriously, it is not yet prepared for the new threat of catastrophic terrorism. And they go on to say, quote, an act of catastrophic terrorism that killed thousands or tens of thousands of people and or disrupted the necessities of life for hundreds of thousands or even millions will be a watershed event in American history. Constitutional liberties would be challenged as the United States sought to protect itself from further attacks by pressing against allowable limits and surveillance of citizens, detention of suspects and the use of deadly force. Like Pearl Harbor, such an event would divide our past and future into a before and after. So that's either an amazing level of prescience being displayed by Philip Zelikow, or I don't know. I mean, people out there can make up their own mind, but it's incredibly impressive that these people were so predictive of what was going to happen on 9-11 and afterwards and didn't even really go out and brag about it. I mean, people like Paul Bremer and Philip Zelikow are extremely suspicious to me in the kind of foreknowledge they had because you would expect someone like that who just merely predicted such an attack and didn't have any involvement in it whatsoever would brag about being so prescient after the fact and vocally so, but neither of them really ever did that. Because as you'll see, uh, those characters have many suspicious connections to 9-11 itself and also the ensuing cover-up of 9-11. And another interesting twist, um, there is a, a think tank called the Aspen Institute. And unlike a lot of other think tanks, this one is shockingly bipartisan. It was mostly brought into mainstream consciousness because Scooter Libby made some weird cryptic reference to Judith Miller in prison about the Aspen Institute, sort of implying that if she talked too much about what she knew during the Scooter Libby trial, then the Aspens would turn against her. Now, you might think, oh, this is just another one of those PNAC style, you know, neoconservative think tanks, but you would be wrong. I'll give you the names of several people who are in this think tank that don't really fall into that category, and some who do as well. Um, Philip Zelikow was part of this think tank. Diane Feinstein, Michael Eisner, the CEO of Disney, Scooter Libby, Paul Wolfowitz, Judith Miller, Al Gore, and even Dick Cheney. And most shocking for me was that Prince Bandar, aka Bandar Bush, the man who had met bin Laden at one time at a family gathering is in this think tank together. Very interesting connections there. I recommend everybody look into the Aspen Institute. Um, not many people have reported on, on Aspen Institute activities. Founded in 1950. More Taliban U.S. corporate relations happening around December 4th, 1997. From History Commons, it says... Representatives of the Taliban are invited guests to the Texas headquarters of Unical to negotiate their support for the pipeline. Future President George W. Bush is governor of Texas at the time. The Taliban appeared to agree to a $2 billion pipeline deal, but will do the deal only if the U.S. officially recognizes the Taliban regime. 
the Taliban meet with U.S. officials. According to the Daily Telegraph, quote, the U.S. government, which in the past has branded the Taliban's policies against women and children despicable, appears anxious to please the fundamentalist to clinch the lucrative pipeline contract. And this is another scene portrayed in the movie Fahrenheit 9-11. It shows the Taliban government officials coming to Texas and doing a press conference where they're like insulting women in the press who are asking them questions. In 1997, while George W. Bush was governor of Texas, a delegation of Taliban leaders from Afghanistan flew to Houston to meet with UNICAL executives to discuss the building of a pipeline through Afghanistan, bringing natural gas from the Caspian Sea. And who got a Caspian Sea drilling contract the same day UNICAL signed the pipeline deal? A company headed by a man named Dick Cheney. Halliburton. From the point of view of the U.S. government, this was kind of a magic pipeline um, because it could serve so many purposes. And who else stood to benefit from the pipeline? Bush's number one campaign contributor, Kenneth Lay, and the good people of Enron. Only the British press covered this trip. Then in 2001, just five and a half months before 9-11, the Bush administration welcomed a special Taliban envoy to tour the United States to help improve the image of the Taliban government. You have imprisoned the women. It's a horror, let me tell you. And I'm really sorry to your husband. He met have a very difficult time with you. Here is the Taliban official visiting our State Department to meet with U.S. officials. Why on earth would the Bush administration allow a Taliban leader to visit the United States knowing that the Taliban were harboring the man who bombed the USS Cole and our African embassies. As far as I am aware of, this is the first attempt or discussion about an attempt or an actual plan to capture Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. From History Commons, in Late 1997 and early 1998, the U.S. develops a plan to capture Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. A CIA-owned aircraft is stationed in a nearby country, ready to land on a remote landing strip long enough to pick him up. However, problems with having to hold bin Laden too long in Afghanistan make the operation unlikely. The plan morphs into using a team of Afghan informants to kidnap bin Laden from inside his heavily defended Tarnak farm complex. So we knew at the time where he was located. Michael Scheuer, the head of the CIA's bin Laden unit, also known as the Alex Station, calls the plan, quote, the perfect operation. So back in early 1998 is when the drone program sort of got its soft launch. This is when we actually were publicly aware of names like Global Hawk, Predator, another more obscure drone name. One of the early drones was named Dark Star. As early as 1997, the Global Hawk was operating. There's not very much information on if it was operating overseas in any sort of real military capacity, but it's safe to say that the U.S. government has had unmanned aerial vehicle technology for multiple decades before 9-11. Um, if you go back to the document titled Operation Northwoods that was written up by the Joint Chiefs of Staff under John F. Kennedy, they discussed plans in that document on how to pilot a passenger jetliner remotely, essentially a drone jetliner, and this is back in the 1960s. 
So it's unclear on if they had that technology operationally back then. But later in the 70s and early 80s, um, we have information that the U.S. military was already experimenting with landing and takeoff of a full 747-sized plane using unmanned aerial vehicle technology. So that's just to give you a taste of just how long drones in general have been going around. But the idea of drone warfare, of sort of expanding the battlefield of a war to be global with no conventions necessary, no UN treaties necessary, just sort of sneak into a country with a drone and bomb something and then leave. That precedent was set under the Clinton administration. Now, it's not much different, if you really think about it, from like a U.S. plane flying into a country and shooting someone with a missile attack or a helicopter or something like that. But it's different in the sense that if a drone crashed, you know, in, on foreign soil in an enemy country, we wouldn't perceive it the same way. They wouldn't be able to, you know, kidnap our, whoever survived the crash and, and sort of hold them up as a spy or anything like that because it's essentially a robot. <laughs> not a human being. So it has the advantage, one, because people who live in the United States won't care as much if a drone cr crashes versus a secret spy um, pilot died. I mean, obviously it's it's clear which one would upset Americans more and which ones would also upset other countries more, and not just other countries, but world bodies like the United Nations. If we just preemptively went into another country to assassinate a terrorist with a, with a plane or a fleet of jets, um, we'd be chastised on the world stage. But for some reason, the idea of unmanned aerial vehicles bombing in Yemen, bombing in Pakistan, um, bombing in Syria, that's for some reason that's just slipped in as being sort of an okay thing to do. And it doesn't get much scrutiny from really any side of like world politics. Um, you know, you'll have Middle Eastern countries, of course, criticizing the United States for doing that because of the main target of it. You'll have Russia criticizing it because Russia just, you know, will try to criticize anything they can to sort of deface the United States. But this is a really weird tie-in here that, is so bizarre it almost lends credence to the some of the theories in the 9-11 truth movement that some of the planes used in 9-11 were flown so perfectly that you would have either had to have had an expert seasoned pilot do the flying or some kind of unmanned drone technology to do the flying and i'm not saying i believe either one i'm just saying that what i'm about to tell you actually you know makes that seem less crazy in 1998 9-11 hijacker muhammad atta possibly trains at a base conducting pilotless aircraft exercises this is from history commons a military report released this year describes the Joint Vision 2010 program, a series of analysis, war game studies, experiments, and exercises which are investigating new operational concepts, doctrines, and organizational approaches that will help enable U.S. forces to maintain full-spectrum dominance of the battle space well into the 21st century. Battle space. It's interesting. Battlefield, battle space. 
The whole world is a battle space. And it continues. The Air Force has begun a series of war games entitled Global Engagement at the Air War College, Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. The same report mentions that the military is working on, quote, a variety of new imaging and signals intelligence sensors currently in advanced stages of development deployed abroad, the Global Hawk, Dark Star, and Predator unmanned aerial vehicles. Air Force spokesman Colonel Ken McClellan said a man named Muhammad Atta, which the FBI has identified as one of the five hijackers of American Airlines Flight 11, had once attended the International Officer School at Maxwell Gunter Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. But he adds that there was discrepancies in the biographical data, mainly the birth date, and it may just be a case of mistaken identity. So that's kind of one of those things where maybe this guy backpedaled on what he said because he got a talking to, or maybe he it was a case of mistaken identity. It's awfully similar to another military um, guy's claims about the Monterey Defense Language Institute, which is a language training school often used by the CIA to teach spies and operatives to speak different languages. Next up on the timeline is a component that I think defies most people's understanding of, of the post 9-11 world. When you hear of the Homeland Security Agency, which was enacted on October 1st, 2001 by George W. Bush, you might mistakenly believe that this agency was created in reaction to 9-11 or that the agency's framework was created in reaction to 9-11. But in fact, the framework for the Homeland Security Agency was originally proposed in 1998 by what's called the Hart-Rudman Commission. That report that they made called for a new independent, quote, National Homeland Security Agency, which was designed to protect against catastrophic terrorist attacks. One of the commission's most important conclusions in its phase one report was that attacks against American citizens on American soil causing heavy casualties are likely over the next quarter century. 1998 was when this commission started releasing their reports. It goes on to say, these attacks may involve weapons of mass destruction and weapons of mass disruption. The United States is today very poorly organized to design and implement any comprehensive strategy to protect the homeland. Here are some people that testified to and were part of the Hart-Rudman Commission. Lee Hamilton, who would later become the co-chair of the 9-11 Commission. Newt Gingrich, Brian Michael Jenkins, again, um, the guy that we mentioned earlier, who was one of the world's most leading terrorist experts and also was involved in paramilitary terrorism in the South America in the 1980s via the RAND Corporation, and Gary Hart. And Senator Gary Hart is actually someone who did brag about predicting 9-11. Um, because if you read the Hart-Rudman uh, report's conclusions, you essentially get very similar wording to Brian Michael Jenkins, Paul Bremer, Paul Wolfowitz, Philip Zelikow before 9-11 about a Pearl Harbor-like event or a catastrophic terrorist attack with weapons of mass destruction. So he's an exception to that rule that I was telling you about earlier. People who discussed this commission in the Senate included Joseph Biden, Patrick Leahy, um, Edward Kennedy, Russ Feingold. Um, and there's some contradictory information here. There's a lot of reports out there that Bush 
didn't fund this until October 1st, 2001, but apparently they chose, they assigned Dick Cheney to be in the head of a commission right when he got into office that was supposed to be like a sequel to the, the, um, Hart Rudman commission. But there's a lot of these warring factions, you know, that are trying to shape the 9-11 official story in retrospect. And one of them involves this idea that the Clinton administration had all this stuff already set up, that Newt Gingrich and, and Bill Clinton actually came together on this in a rare instance of like bipartisan agreement. We recommended in a commission I served on, the Hart-Rudman Commission, creating a Homeland Security Agency and bringing Coast Guard and Border Patrol and Customs and Immigration into one place where they would actually have a central role and a central mission led by FEMA because we warned that this incident, as terrible as it is, is smaller than the incidents that we warned about back in March, which we think in the next 10 or 15 years could include chemical and biological and nuclear weapons. The report was finished in 1998. And it was given to him towards the last two years of his presidency. So the Bush administration had all this stuff. And the intelligence agencies were aware of the key recommendations. And a lot of them involved similar recommendations to the one brought up in the 9-11 Commission. I mean, essentially tightening airline security, making it harder to hijack planes, putting GPS positioning inside planes outside of the transponder system. Also, the potential technology to pilot a plane if it had been hijacked externally so someone could take over the controls from a, via a computer if they find out a passenger plane has been hijacked by a terrorist, all that kind of stuff. But the contradictory information comes in here, where on September 11th, 2001, and I'm going to play you a clip of this, Tony Snow is reporting for Fox News while they're showing live video footage of the Pentagon on fire. Tony Snow says... Or in fact, there may not be a death toll. The casualty toll there may be much lower than originally feared for the simple reason that the part of the Pentagon that was struck today by an airliner was in fact undergoing renovation. And as a consequence, not all the offices there were occupied. Our James Rosen earlier had passed on a report, interestingly enough, that a couple of the offices in the, that portion of the Pentagon, uh, portions that were struck, uh, were offices that deal with trying to deal with counterterrorism. One is called the Office of Homeland Defense. It's a newly created office that was slated to get a big budget increase, even though Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld has been talking about reducing expenditures. And also, there was an office for uh, special operations and low-intensity conflict. That is shorthand, again, for dealing with small wars with terrorists around the world. And that's the latest from Washington. Back to New York. Tony Snow in Washington. Tony, thank you. Even Bush himself won't admit to creating the, the Hart Murderman Commission's um, Homeland Security Agency until October 1st, 2001. There were already offices in the Pentagon that were based on the Hart Rudman reports findings, or it was a, a re in reaction to those findings. So this is just to go summarize this really quickly. This was the Homeland Security Agency in existence previous to 9-11 and not just the framework for it, not just the recommendations, but apparently even offices of the Homeland Security Agency were hit by a plane in the Pentagon on 9-11. The beginning of the Clinton presidency was the first time any Americans had heard of Fox News. But another famous news entity that would sort of change the news landscape forever and would um, launch it into a new era of citizen journalism and bloggers also made its 
splash onto the scene with a very famous event. And that event was the Clinton sex scandal, which was first broke by Drudge Report on January 17th, 1998. Now, Clinton had already been dealing with a lot of other noteworthy sex scandals uh, previous to this um, with Jennifer Flowers, um, some other people that I forget the names of. But this, so at first, when this sort of broke, I don't think that people necessarily thought that it was true yet. We get around to February 1998, and this is when the Kosovo War happened. It was an armed conflict in Kosovo that lasted for about a year. Um, started in February 28, 1998, and lasted until about June 11, 1999. It was fought by the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, uh, forces of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, a Kosovo-Albanian rebel group known as the Kosovo Liberation Army. It had air support from NATO and ground support from the Albanian army. This is a quote from Wikipedia. This is like what the historical record shows. Um, you know, this is the official account of how the war got initiated. Um, quote, after attempts at a diplomatic solution failed, NATO intervened, justifying the campaign in Kosovo as a, quote, humanitarian war. My fellow Americans, Today, our armed forces joined our NATO allies in airstrikes against Serbian forces responsible for the brutality in Kosovo. We have acted with resolve for several reasons. We act to protect thousands of innocent people in Kosovo from a mounting military offensive. We act to prevent a wider war, to defuse a powder keg at the heart of Europe that has exploded twice before in this century with catastrophic results. And we act to stand united with our allies for peace. By acting now, we are upholding our values, protecting our interests, and advancing the cause of peace. Not too long after the Drudge Report revelation on January 22, 1998, this is from History Commons, it says, President Clinton's pressure on Israel interrupted by Lewinsky revelation. Quote, President Clinton meets with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to discuss restarting the stalled Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Clinton immediately chastises Netanyahu for meeting with American religious conservatives before meeting with him. Now, this is the weird part. I guess back in the 90s, Netanyahu thought it was smart to ally himself with Jerry Falwell, who was like one of the world's most famous televangelists at the time. Jerry Falwell will later recall... While Netanyahu was sitting there, he, had, he was in a very difficult spot. The pressure was really on him to give away the farm in Israel. But while he was sitting there, someone came in and whispered in Mr. Clinton's ear, and Mr. Clinton turned several colors. Someone was telling him that the cat was out of the bag on Monica Lewinsky. The meeting was terminated. Mr. Clinton had to save himself. The demands to relinquish Israeli territory that would have been forthcoming of Israel, which would have been terrible, were not made. Netanyahu flew back to Israel. He was very funny when he told me about it. He said Israel had been saved by Monica Lewinsky. Now comes a very familiar phrase that we mostly only associate with the Bush administration's rhetoric. But on February 18th, 1998, Clinton accuses Iraq of building, quote, arsenal of weapons of mass destruction. From History Commons again, quote, President Clinton accuses Iraq of trying to build, quote, an arsenal of devastating destruction and says, quote, someday, some way, I guarantee you, he'll use the arsenal. 
I, I won't, I won't tonight, I can't rule out or in any options, but I can tell you I'm very concerned about this. And uh, I don't think the American people should lose sight of the issue. What's the issue? Weapons of mass destruction. And uh, sooner or later, something's going to give here. Sometimes we have to be prepared to move alone. You, you use the anthrax example. Think how many people can be killed by just a tiny bit of anthrax. And think about how it's not just a question of whether Saddam Hussein might put them on a Scud missile, an anthrax head, and think about all the terrorists and drug runners and other bad actors that could just parade through Baghdad to pick up their stores if we don't take the strongest possible action. I far prefer the United Nations. I far prefer the inspectors. I have been far from trigger happy on this thing. But if they really believe that there are no circumstances under which we would act alone, they are sadly mistaken. Now, it was around this time that a lot of Republican pundits and a lot of people on the right started to think that Clinton was using foreign policy as a distraction from his own sex scandals. And later, a movie will even be produced called Wag the Dog, which sort of references indirectly him going into Kosovo with a NATO bombing campaign right at the height of the sex scandal, sort of eclipsing anything else that he was doing at the time. And in the movie Wag the Dog, they portray this, the country as Albania instead of Kosovo. On May 22nd, 1998, Clinton creates, for the first time in American history, a counterterrorism czar post. And he selects, of course, Richard Clark. This is from History Commons. Quote, President Clinton creates the new post of National Coordinator for Security, Infrastructure Protection, and Counterterrorism. He names Richard Clark for the job, and due to the length of the title, Clark soon becomes known as the Counterterrorism Czar. On June 9, 1998, President Clinton declares a, quote, national emergency due to the unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States imposed by Yugoslavia and Serbia over the Kosovo War. So I'm not quite sure if he imposed a national emergency um, domestically. Uh, I'm assuming that's what that means, but that's I guess that's pretty unusual, um, especially for something that was happening so far away from us. As you'll see later, um, there there's some interesting ties with Russia here. And during the entire Clinton presidency and most of the most of the George H. W. Bush administration, we weren't engaged in the in a Cold War with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union completely collapsed by 1991. And before that, it was already on its way to collapse for, you know, quite a bit. You know, there were people outside of the Clinton administration that were trying to ratchet up the fear about the Soviet Union, about, the, you know, the Cold War, etc. You know, keep in mind the timing. This is right before the George W. Bush administration takes office. We're, we're about two and a half years away from the George W. Bush inauguration. So then we get into a little bit more of the NSA's role in pre-9-11 foreknowledge from History Commons in late 1998 and after. U.S. intelligence still monitors bin Laden's calls after he stops using his satellite phone. So bin Laden acquired a really unusual thing for like, a, you know, a normal low-level terrorist or whatever. wouldn't Probably couldn't afford something like this, but it was a special satellite link-up phone um, that was aside from a normal cellular phone. 
that was that was procured for Bin Laden. I think it was very expensive to get one of these phones. It was something like fifteen grand at the time to buy one. It was like a military style phone. History Commons goes on to say. Articles discuss the extent to which the NSA's Echelon satellite network is monitoring Al-Qaeda and even seems to make an oblique reference to monitoring the Al-Qaeda safe house in Yemen that enabled the NSA to discover valuable information on hijackers Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midyar. In fact, I know of specifics, uh, like six or seven phone calls from uh, San Diego back to the Yemen facility. Uh, and by the way, all, both ends were known. I mean, both numbers were there. It, that's how caller ID works, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, and you're talking about switches. And, uh, now, the switches have to know exactly how to pass or where it's coming from to pass the other line back. So they, they have to have the information to make the connection. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. The article also reveals that since 1995, bin Laden tried to protect his communications with the full suite of two tools, but, quote, codes were broken. So even this satellite phone, after he realized the FBI or the NSA was hearing his conversations, he switched to a new phone, but the NSA continued to monitor this phone. History Commons goes on to say, quote, the NSA is monitoring phone calls between bin Laden in Afghanistan and Khalid al-Fawaz in London, yet no action is taken after al-Fawaz is given advance notice of the African embassy bombings. Al-Fawaz, together with Ibrahim Idaras and Abdul Abdel Barry are operating as bin Laden's de facto international media office in London. And the NSA has listened in for two years as bin Laden called them over 200 times. The NSA and these articles that History Commons links to, you can find details on exactly what the NSA heard. And it was very clear at the time that these African embassy bombings were going to take place. So there's an argument um, to be made there that they the NSA simply stood back and allowed these attacks to occur. Um, this, and I'll go into what those attacks were in a, in a bit here. Um, between 1996 and September 11, 2001, FBI directly monitors militants in Al-Qaeda with high-tech phone booth. Also from History Commons. A squad of FBI agents and Justice Department prosecutors that began focusing on bin Laden in 1996 are upset that the NSA is not sharing with them data it has obtained through the monitoring of Al-Qaeda. So this is the same thing that Michael Scheuer was complaining about about the CIA, that the agency, that the NSA itself seems to be the culprit of a lot of these times when they didn't share information. So the FBI set up its own satellite telephone booth in Afghanistan. And apparently, according to the FBI's information gathered from this secret surveilled phone booth, or Robert Wright, FBI agent, goes on to say, quote, just about everyone in Kandahar and in the Al-Qaeda camps knew that something big was coming. He said, quote, there was buzz, unquote. Um, and also around the same time, the, an FBI squad threatens to build an antenna because NSA won't share monitoring of bin Laden's phone calls. So if you want to believe these news reports, and I'm not necessarily sure if you can believe a lot of this interagency rivalry kind of reporting, reportage that was done after 9-11, because keep in mind, a lot of that is part of that official story of why 9-11 happened, even though we had all these agencies out there designed to stop a lot of um, attacks in this fashion. So this, these, are, these are more stories saying that the NSA refused to share information. But let's assume that they did refuse to share information. Um, you have to ask why 
were they refusing to share information with the other agencies that would have actually been able to act on it? It's very strange. Later in 1998, uh, the United States embassy bombings happened Tanzania and Kenya. Uh, there were a series of attacks that occurred on August 7th, 1998, in which hundreds of people were killed in simultaneous truck bomb explosions. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. Two American embassies blown up in East Africa, minutes apart. Who did it? Why? And why now? These Kenya and Tanzania, Robin, pictures all day long, terrible pictures. Obviously, America and Americans were the target, but why and who and what's the point they're trying to make? We don't have any idea who was involved. There were, interestingly enough, no claims of responsibility. Now, this was, I think, the first really hyped up attack by Osama bin Laden in the mainstream U.S. news media. Um, even though bin Laden had already declared a jihad on us earlier, people that he was communicating with had their cell phone calls monitored by the NSA, and the NSA agents heard bin Laden discussing the African embassy bombings before they happened, even the locations that they were going to happen. Uh, there are some obvious suspects, some of the usual suspects, but two of the names that have been bandied around a lot uh, today are Osama bin Laden, who is a wealthy Saudi dissident uh, out to topple the regime, who has backed a wide variety of Islamic extremist groups throughout the region. He's been most active in Afghanistan. He was very involved in uh, fighting Soviet occupation, but he's also, in the past two months, issued fatwas or edicts against the United States and warned that America would understand that he'd gone to war with them once they saw coffins returning with American bodies. From mid-1998 to 2000, U.S. submarines were ready to attack Osama bin Laden. Within days of the U.S.-Africa embassy bombings, the U.S. permanently stations two submarines reportedly in the Indian Ocean, ready to hit al-Qaeda with cruise missiles on short notice. And this is one of the excuses later used by the Clinton administration of why they didn't take out Osama bin Laden when they had the chance. It says at some point in 2000, the submarines are withdrawn, apparently because the Navy wants to use them for other purposes. Therefore, when the unmanned predator spy plane flies over Afghanistan in late 2000 and identifies bin Laden, there is no way to capitalize on that opportunity. The next event marks sort of an important turning point in the whole Clinton sex scandal affair. On August 17, 1998, Clinton admitted in a taped grand jury testimony that he had, quote, an improper physical relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Um, this is where all those juicy details came out about him fucking Monica Lewinsky with a cigar, um, him getting a blowjob in the Oval Office, that kind of stuff. It all came out. And the amazing thing about this grand jury testimony is that the entire thing is on tape and was made available to the public and the media. So I think this is a very important historical moment, not because the sex scandal itself was really that big of a deal, but simply because this will be the last time in recent American history that an American president will be put on the spot by any kind of justice system or, or law enforcement. You will never probably see a president in this position again. George W. Bush and Obama faced nothing like this during their presidencies. George W. Bush even got to testify in front of the 9-11 Commission in private. And then really shortly after this grand jury testimony that was very explosive, um, it was sort of the joke of the 
of the whole world on all the late night talk shows for weeks and weeks. But while all this was happening and while the Republicans were having a field day crucifying Bill Clinton in late August of 1999, Clinton was working out a plan with Richard Clark to kill Osama bin Laden with a missile strike. Richard Clark will later claim that he, quote, worries Clinton might let the timing of the scandal get in the way of acting on new intelligence to hit Osama bin Laden with a missile attack in retaliation for the recent African embassy bombings. But Clark is reassured when Clinton tells his advisors, quote, do you all recommend that we strike on the 20th? Fine. Do not give me political advice or personal advice about the timing. That's my problem. Let me worry about that. So again, Clinton will be heavily criticized for doing a missile strike to distract from the sex scandal. And of course, this is that infamous missile strike that supposedly shot a um, pharmaceutical factory, but of course didn't kill Osama bin Laden. Former CIA intelligence analyst Michael Scheuer, you were very much involved in tracking bin Laden, were you not? Yes, sir. I formed the first uh, unit to, trace, to chase Osama bin Laden and try to capture or kill him in 1996. Obviously, uh, we're watching very closely the developments of al-Qaeda and bin Laden. Uh, did, did you think that the American government was not taking the threat seriously? Yeah, they really never took the threat seriously, sir. It, it, they they uh, uh, talked a good game. But they really never did very much. Uh, we gave the clandestine service of the United States, gave uh, the Clinton administration eight to ten chances to either capture or kill Osama bin Laden. Excuse me, stop. You gave the Clinton administration eight to ten chances to do what? To capture or kill Osama bin Laden. Uh, either capture him using our the, the uh, assets of the CIA or providing exact uh, geographical locations so the military could kill them using their weapons. And, and there was a reluctance to act? Well, they didn't act on any of them, sir. One time, uh, Osama bin Laden was having lunch with an Arab prince in the desert in Afghanistan, and uh, the target, there would have been no collateral damage except for the prince and his entourage. And instead of killing bin Laden, uh, Mr. Berger and Mr. Clark at the NSC decided to call the Emirates and warn them that we knew the prince was there. Now, a lot of partisan Republicans will use this next event on the timeline to defend George W. Bush's preemptive, unprovoked war in Iraq. And while, of course, it doesn't excuse George W. Bush's horrendous actions in Iraq whatsoever, in some ways they actually have a point, um, even though most of these partisan Republicans are complete morons, um, loved Bush and hated Clinton. On October 31st, 1998, Clinton signs law making it U.S. policy to remove Hussein in Iraq. From History Commons, quote, President Clinton signs the Iraq Liberation Act of 1998 into law. The act which, which passed with overwhelming support from Democrats and Republicans in both the House and Senate was written by Trent Lott and other Republicans with significant input from Ahmed Chalabi and his aide, Francis Brooke working with Congress to implement the Iraq Liberation Act, which was recently passed. Saddam Hussein remains an impediment to the well-being of his people and a threat to the peace of his region and the security of the world. We will continue to contain the threat that he poses by working for the elimination of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction capability under UNSCOM. However, over the long term, the best way to address that threat is through a government in Baghdad, a new government, 
that is committed to represent and respect its people, not repress them. Over the past year, we have deepened our engagement with the forces of change in Iraq, reconciling the two largest Kurdish opposition groups, beginning broadcasts of a radio-free Iraq throughout the country. We will intensify that effort. The hard fact is that so long as Saddam remains in power, he threatens the well-being of his people, the peace of his region, the security of the world. The best way to end that threat, once and for all, is with a new Iraqi government, a government ready to live in peace with its neighbors, a government that respects the rights of its people. Bringing change in Baghdad will take time and effort. We will strengthen our engagement with the full range of Iraqi opposition forces and work with them effectively and prudently. We often hear about how many warnings President George W. Bush got about bin Laden or members of al-Qaeda planning to hijack planes and use them as weapons against landmarks in the United States. But we don't hear about this kind of stuff very often, such as the event on December 4th, 1998, where Bill Clinton was warned that a bin Laden attack was in the planning phases where bin Laden was preparing to hijack U.S. aircraft inside the United States. From History Commons, it says, quote, An item in President Clinton's presidential daily briefing is titled, Bin Laden Preparing to Hijack U.S. Aircraft and Other Attacks. The PDB says, Bin Laden and its allies are preparing for attacks in the U.S., including an aircraft hijacking. On December 16th to the 19th in 1998, quote, Operation Desert Fox hammers Iraqi targets in retaliation for Iraq's refusal to cooperate with UN inspectors. From History Commons, air traffic controllers on board the USS Enterprise guide strike aircraft on bombing runs into Iraq. The US and Britain launch a joint series of over 250 airstrikes against Iraqi military targets. The airstrikes are designed to, in the mission statement released by the U.S. Navy, degrade Saddam Hussein's ability to make and use weapons of mass destruction, to, quote, Saddam, diminish Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war against his neighbors, and to, quote, demonstrate to Saddam Hussein the consequences of violating international obligations. The airstrikes are carried out by U.S. Navy and Marine Corps aircraft from the USS Enterprise. Saddam Hussein must not be allowed to threaten his neighbors or the world with nuclear arms, poison gas, or biological weapons. I want to explain why I have decided, with the unanimous recommendation of my national security team, to use force in Iraq, why we have acted now, and what we aim to accomplish. Six weeks ago, Saddam Hussein announced that he would no longer cooperate with the United Nations weapons inspectors. The international community had little doubt then and I have no doubt today that left unchecked, Saddam Hussein will use these terrible weapons again. This situation presents a clear and present danger to the stability of the Persian Gulf and the safety of people everywhere. If we turn our backs on his defiance, the credibility of U.S. power as a check against Saddam will be destroyed. We will not only have allowed Saddam to shatter the inspection system that controls his weapons of mass destruction program, we also will have fatally undercut the fear of force that stopped Saddam from acting to gain domination in the region. That is why, on the unanimous recommendation of my national security team, I have ordered a strong, sustained series of airstrikes against Iraq. 
They are designed to degrade Saddam's capacity to develop and deliver weapons of mass destruction. Now we move on to an elusive um, program that was once elusive but has now um, been brought to light by uh, NSA whistleblower Bill Binney, um, also known as William Binney. He was responsible for developing a massive, indiscriminate bulk NSA data collection scheme that collected metadata and internet traffic and phone records. And I'm going to read from uh, Wikipedia to give you a little description of exactly what it was. Now, keep in mind that a lot of the information that comes that's come out about Thin Thread has been in fits and starts, and it's it's vague at best. I think that we've, I mean, we can only really go by what Bill Binney is saying, and he hasn't given, let's say he just have, hasn't given specific details on how much President Clinton endorsed this, what the White House's involvement was in this, if it was just an NSA experiment. He's essentially made it seem like the Bill Clinton administration endorsed this idea and gave it the go-ahead. And essentially what it was, was um, it's what the quote-unquote the program is now, Trailblazer, or an earlier version of was called Stellar Wind. Here to discuss their experiences at the NSA as well as what the Snowden revelations mean for all of us. I'm joined now by Bill Binney and Kirk Weemey. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming on. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill, I wanted to start with you. You were one of the creators of the pre-9-11 data collection surveillance program called Thin Thread, which actually did have privacy protections instated for American citizens. Mm -hmm. Why was this program abandoned and what kind of system replaced it? Well, it actually wasn't abandoned. The, the back part of the analysis part, the part that allowed them to deal with massive amounts of data and index it, uh, was taken in uh, to manage. That was the way they, they actually were able to, uh, to build surveillance on the entire world. That, that particular program was that powerful, and that's why we put in those protections so that uh, it would be impossible for them to abuse it. And that was the first thing they removed when they took it into the new program, Stellar Wind. The NSA essentially took the keys and the, the framework that Bill Binney devised, and they just tweaked it so that the data wasn't encrypted anymore. Bill Binney put an encryption scheme in the, D, in the original version of ThinThread, um, which made it so that you couldn't tell who was communicating from one end to the other unless you found something suspicious or, I guess, suspicious activity through the patterns, and then you would then go get a warrant to check and see who that was and, and actually then maybe actually start wiretapping their phone calls and things like that. And on Wikipedia, they described ThinThread as the program would have used a technique of encrypting sensitive privacy information in order to in order to comply with legal concerns. ThinThread would have bundled together four cutting-edge surveillance tools, more sophisticated methods of sorting through massive phone and email data to identify suspicious communications, U.S. phone numbers and other communications data, and encrypted them to ensure caller privacy, employed an automated auditing system to monitor how analysts handled information in order to prevent misuse and improve efficiency, analyzed the data to identify relationships between callers and chronicle their contacts. Intelligence experts describe as rigorous testing of ThinThread in 1998. The project succeeded at each task with high marks. 
So the Thin Thread program, as we'll learn later, that a lot of the people who were concerned with the Millennium-related terrorist threat, they wanted it to be launched. In 1999, they were hoping that um, Thin Thread would be launched in time for them to be able to predict movements of possible terrorist threats on the Millennium. And it was, quote, coincidentally ready to be launched around 9-11. I'm not quoting this Wikipedia entry anymore. I'm just talking now. Now, tying into this that the fact that thin thread had already been devised. Now, you know, you could argue if you're thinking of the war on terror and this whole like terrorism propaganda framework in the context of Bush only, you would wrongly assume that, okay, you know, they use this opportunity of 9-11 to implement this massive bulk data collection scheme. Um, and that's how they got their way. That's how they got their way in, you know, but somehow this scheme had already been set up before 9-11 without a looming or imminent threat. So then we jumped to another NSA program, which was codenamed the Clipper Chip. And this is from Wikipedia. The Clipper Chip was a chipset that was developed and promoted by the U.S. National Security Agency as an encryption device with a built-in NSA backdoor. It was to be adopted by telecommunication companies for voice transmission. It was announced in 1993, and by 1996, it was entirely defunct. This is according to the historical record, but we don't really know how many phone companies decided to accept this secret backdoor chip in their devices and the, and keep in mind this is this is also for landlines um this is not just for i mean this is 1993 so you have to imagine back in 90, 1993 there are very few people using cell phones you know in the mainstream cell phones didn't really start to become popular until the late 90s in early 1999 there's an abc news report that's based on um some anonymous intelligence officials in the Clinton administration, they're putting out a report that's trying to tie bin Laden to Saddam Hussein. And the report is essentially claiming, um, and I'll play a little clip here, Saddam Hussein allowed bin Laden to visit Iraq and bin Laden met with several senior Iraqi intelligence officials about trying to procure a nuclear weapon to perform some kind of like nuclear terrorist attack. The U.S. government alleges he was under secret orders to procure enriched uranium for the purpose of developing nuclear weapons. These are allegations bin Laden does not now deny. It would be a sin for Muslims not to try to possess the weapons that would prevent the infidels from inflicting harms on Muslims. There weren't many places bin Laden could go unless he teamed up with another international pariah one also with an interest in weapons of mass destruction. So it's it's pretty crazy that back in 1999, they were already trying to tie Saddam Hussein to, to Al-Qaeda. And you just have to think about that in, in the sense that, you know, we have these seeds being planted previous to this event that's going to change the human experience in America forever. Saddam Hussein has a long history of harboring terrorists. Intelligence sources say bin Laden's long relationship with the Iraqis began as he helped Sudan's fundamentalist government in their efforts to acquire weapons of mass destruction. Three weeks after the bombing, on August 31st, bin Laden reaches out to his friends in Iraq and Sudan. Afterwards, when we start talking about when, when the pivot towards Saddam Hussein started to happen after we were already in Afghanistan after 9-11, 
it kind of makes sense how people are more easily able to go along with it if there was already this vague notion out there floating around in the media ether previous to 9-11 that Saddam Hussein was indeed in leagues with bin Laden. ABC News has learned that in December, an Iraqi intelligence chief named Farouk Hijazi, now Iraq's ambassador to Turkey, made a secret trip to Afghanistan to meet with bin Laden. Three intelligence agencies tell ABC News they cannot be certain what was discussed. But almost certainly, they say, bin Laden has been told he would be welcome in Baghdad. Bin Laden tells ABC News that his network is wide and there are people prepared to commit terror in his name who he does not even control. Alhamdulillah. It is our job to incite and to instigate. By the grace of God, we did that. That, to me, is really fascinating, and that is ABC News. And ABC News is the same news network where, that Brian Ross spread the um, falsehoods about bentonite being found in the anthrax, which tied Saddam Hussein's administration to the anthrax attacks in October of 2001. This is when uh, Richard Clark enters the picture once again. He was acting as President Clinton's official counterterrorism czar at the time. And it's very interesting to me that he was probably the most prominent figure in the United States to focus on specifically bioterrorism. And he did a talk at the tail end of 1998 in October 7th called U.S. Counterterrorism Policy. And the talk is specifically about how many aspects of the United States infrastructure would are not prepared for a massive bioterrorism attack. He specifically hones in on anthrax as being one of the most likely. Um, he talks about how Iraq has anthrax and other state actors have anthrax as well. Um, and nerve gas um, is another thing suggested. Whether they are rogue nations or terrorist groups could attack a country, could attack a military power that was vastly more superior militarily than they were. Two events happened that drew our attention to the issues again of chemical weapons and biological weapons. First and foremost was the continuing problem with Iraq. Iraq, you recall, was one of the few nations in the history of the world to have used chemical weapons. They used them not only on the Iranians, but they used them on their own people. And after the war called Desert Storm, the United Nations put into effect an arms control regime to find and destroy Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. The Iraqis were fitfully cooperative. They cooperated a little bit on missiles, they cooperated a little bit on chemical weapons, but consistently they did not cooperate in the UN's investigation of their biological weapons program. So the Bush administration and a lot of these neoconservatives used a lot of this rhetoric um, from him to help uh, promote their message against Iraq later. And then in early 1999, Richard Clark also did a talk called Bioterrorism Prevention, where it was where it was giving suggestions on how the U.S. government can better respond to such an attack. Again, mostly focusing on anthrax. 
he even mentions the idea that a terrorist could use a biological agent on a government building. And that's what happened when um, Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy were sent anthrax in the mail to the U.S. Uh, congressional offices. The Iraqi regime seemed to be willing to take almost any punishment and go to almost any extreme in order to preserve a biological weapons option. And the list of nations developing biological weapons and chemical weapons. I think it is perfectly legitimate for us to ask ourselves if those nations, state sponsors of terrorism, have funded terrorism, have equipped terrorists, have harbored terrorists, have given them intelligence support, if they have done all of that and they have biological weapons in their own arsenals, is it prudent for the United States to assume that they will never cross the line and give those biological weapons to terrorist groups? Now this next event is going to be one of those quickies that I'm not going to really go into in depth because um, we have a lot of other events that are covering similar things. But this is an interesting, notable event. On February 18, 1999, CIA spokesman Bill Harlow releases a Tom Clancy-esque sort of military terrorism thriller novel. But the plot in this novel involves terrorists hijacking a commercial airliner and using it as a kamikaze weapon. Bill Harlow later co-authored George Tennant's book, At the Center of the Storm. The next event on our timeline around February 1999 is almost so ridiculous that it's hard to believe. The coincidental nature of it in some ways is almost more ridiculous than the lone gunman pilot, um, which aired before 9-11 that portrayed a group of military industrial complex, old white dudes trying to frame Arab terrorists by remote controlling a commercial airliner and flying it into the World Trade Center. Um, from History Commons, it says, In February 1999, a Hollywood action movie was planned based on terrorist plot to blow up the World Trade Center. Quote, production begins on Nosebleed, a major action comedy movie based around a terrorist plot to blow up the WTC, which will star the well-known martial artist and actor Jackie Chan. In the movie, Chan will play a window washer at the WTC who uncovers a terrorist plot to bomb the Twin Towers. Chan's character teams up with a waitress who works at Windows of the World, the restaurant at the top of the North Tower. The script, originally written in 1999, includes one of the terrorists explaining why the WTC should be destroyed. The terrorist says, quote, it represents capitalism, it represents freedom, it represents everything America is about, and to bring those two buildings down would bring America to its knees. The film was never finished. Um, it went into production, but it was because of 9-11, it was never uh, completed. And we're heading up into March 1999. And History Commons has an interesting event here. This goes along the lines of foreign intelligence agencies' warnings about 9-11 happening before 9-11 in the, in the years and months leading up to 9-11, except we mostly only hear about ones that came through during the Bush administration. But keep in mind that Bush was only in office for a little under a year until 9-11 happened. So... 
it makes sense that some of these foreign intelligence warnings um, about 9-11 hijackers and, and other various things would come in during the Clinton administration. So this is 1999. History Commons says, Germany provides CIA the first name and phone number of 9-11 hijacker Marwan Al-Sheni. CIA takes no action. And this is another interesting tie to the United Arab Emirates, um, someone that Richard Clark is... Uh, well, I should say a country that Richard Clark is very close with, and he also is very, very close to the royal family there. The, this 9-11 hijacker's phone number was registered in the United Arab Emirates. The CIA never responds to the warning until after the 9-11 attacks. When, the, when George Tennant testified to the 9-11 congressional inquiry, he said on record that all the CIA had to go on was the first name and an impossible to trace unlisted number. And then history comments goes on to say, in other words, the CIA appears to have been investigating the man who recruited the hijackers at the time he was recruiting them. Now this is a really weird one that it crosses over into territory that just sort of triggers your disbelief mechanism. I mean, we've all seen Fahrenheit 9-11 and we already know the connections between the Bush family and the bin Laden family. When you really examine each one, it's part of you almost just can't grasp it because it's just so ridiculous. But this is a real event. In June of 1999, the oil company Enron, of course, one of the most corrupt oil companies in the world, whose CEO was thrown in jail, history commons, Enron plans to build power plant with the bin Laden family. Enron announces an agreement to build a $140 million power plant in the Gaza Strip between Israel and Egypt. One of the major financiers for the project is the Saudi Bin Laden Group, a company owned by Bin Laden's family. 90% complete, the construction will be halted because of Palestinian-Israeli violence. And then Enron's bankruptcy. A couple months later, in June 1999, and keep in mind this is only six years after the original 1993 World Trade Center bombing that was a truck bomb parked in the basement. In 1999, in June, Mayor Rudy Giuliani opens the OEM's command center on the 23rd floor of World Trade Center building number seven. World Trade Center building number seven, I'm sure a lot of people out there listening already know a lot of the tenants who were in that building. Um, it hosted the second largest CIA headquarters in the United States. It also had a office of the Secret Service. It was the Secret Service headquarters of New York City. Um, and a lot of other government buildings in there as well. There was um, the Securities and Exchange Commission was in there. What's interesting about Rudy Giuliani setting up in the OEM command center on the 23rd floor of World Trade Center Building 7 um, is that the OEM command center was the Office of Emergency Management. It was in case there was a major weather emergency in New York City, such as a hurricane or something like that. But one of the primary reasons they built it was of a potential terrorist attack or a domestic kind of military attack of some kind. But mostly at the time, there wasn't really even the possibility that a military would attack us in New York City, you know, a foreign military. And that still isn't really a likely possibility because the counterattack would be so extreme. But it was on a lot of people's minds at the time that this was a very bad place to build 
Office of Emergency Management like bunker headquarters. And this bunker thing in the World Trade Center Building 7 had its own generators. It was designed so that if there was a catastrophic emergency, it would still be able to be to run. One of my deputy directors got on the radio and told me we'd just been ordered to evacuate the building. That building was the home of Shearer's state-of-the-art emergency operations center, a bulletproof bunker designed to weather hurricanes, blackouts, and bombs. It was a dazzling array of manpower and technology, workspace for 58 government agencies, computers pinpointing every sewer line and subway tunnel, hotlines to the police and fire departments. But on September 11th, there was just one problem. The $13 million facility was located on the 23rd floor of 7 World Trade Center, and Shearer's staff had to evacuate. Ironically, that's the home to the city's emergency operations center. That's the bunker that uh, was supposed to be impervious to almost any attack and the place where they would coordinate response to something like this. Also some secret service uh, offices in Building 7 at the World Trade Center. I think one of the ironies um, about this is that the multi-million dollar emergency system uh, that was inaugurated I think about a year ago maybe mm -hmm. a little bit longer is located where in the World Trade Center right. uh, and therefore uh, rendered fairly uh, useless uh, today and they've moved to other locations temporarily now things get a little weirder here I forgot to mention that that talk that Richard Clark gave in October 7th, 1998 the US counterterrorism policy he was basically on stage with another guy named Jerome Hauer. The talk revolved around what would be the response to biological and chemical terrorist attacks in the United States. There's Richard Clark on stage with this guy who was the executive director of the Office of Emergency Management in Building 7 in New York City. And Richard Clark is essentially endorsing the idea of, of uh, having this command bunker in WTC7 but at the same time, there was a lot of people actually criticizing Rudy Giuliani for doing this. Um, and even after the event of 9-11, we'll play you a clip here of him being criticized for deciding to put it in this area instead of somewhere farther away where they could have actually responded better to such an attack. Mayor who's claiming to run on 9-11 built his OEM center, his communication center, the basis for all decisions to be made on the site of the World Trade Center that had been attacked just eight years earlier. I mean, he's the one that made the decision to put their bunker in 7 World Trade Center, which I mean, when I was down there on 9-11 that day, I've seen police detectives yelling in the streets that we told him not to put it here, you know, because that was the, the, the target of the terrorists. 7 World Trade Center collapsed at 5 o'clock that night and the emergency command center was never used that day. Mayor Giuliani was running on the street and he was talking to the media instead of being in a controlled environment making controlled decisions. Why? Here's the leader of the city running away from the scene, leaving uniformed personnel from fire and police to deal with this tragic situation that was occurring. Richard Clark also gave another talk in January of 1999. The talk was called Terrorism Issues. And this was actually after he was elected to the position of terrorism czar. So now he was like officially part of the White House, a high level staff. He's in the briefing room at the White House doing this talk with Janet Reno. 
this is just to give you an example of just how many terrorism fears were being pumped out into the public consciousness during this time. At this point in time, it's primarily Richard Clark. White House to join a briefing where Attorney General Janet Reno and Health and Human Service Secretary Donna Shalala discuss cyber, chemical, and bioterrorism. Do we have any defense against ICBM missiles that might deliver this kind of thing? Let me just say, we have no intelligence that indicates there is an ICBM-based threat carrying chemical or biological weapons. And one of the reasons behind this chemical and biological defense preparation initiative is our concern that that kind of threat could emerge in the future. General, is there a civil liberties issue here? The ACLU seems to think that in setting up a national uh, program and coordination, there may be. What I have instructed the center to do, the National Infrastructure Protection Center and the FBI, is to work with our lawyers. And we have recruited and trained lawyers who have the technical information and expertise together with the legal expertise to ensure that what we do complies with the Constitution, complies with privacy rights, and we believe firmly that we can continue to meet our obligations in law enforcement in this era of new technology, while at the same time complying with the Constitution in every way. That hasn't been worked out yet. In other words, they're no, looking No, we're at working on it daily. Next up on the timeline, in June 1999, the Kosovo War uh, was winding down, the Kosovo-NATO military intervention. Um, and I really hate using phrases like that. And a lot of the time I'm using them on the, on the podcast. I'm not endorsing the language um, because I think that it's, it, it's designed to sort of minimize what something like that actually really is, which is a, I mean, it's a murderous bombing campaign. There's a great book by Noam Chomsky. I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but it's called The New Military Humanism, Lessons from Kosovo. And it's sort of one of his more pocketbook-sized books. It's, it's only like maybe 150 pages long. But it, it's, it's one of the only books I've seen that actually tries to um, take apart and dissect all the language and the propaganda during Clinton's Kosovo War. And the way that that war was sold to us was was based on this sort of humanitarian intervention that we needed to stop genocide. But Noam Chomsky does a fantastic job of just totally destroying all that propaganda. I mean, for me personally, I think Noam Chomsky's books from the 90s are some of my favorite books of his. The, the more short, concise, pamphlet-sized and pocketbook-sized ones... He also wrote a great book in 1997 called Media Control, which regardless of what you think about Noam Chomsky, the guy really had great insight onto what was going on pre 9-11. And when you read the book Media Control, it almost seems as if, you know, he's already gone through 9-11 by the way he's talking about the media. But he, he was aware of all this stuff before 9-11, of how controlled it was, how they would just parrot official talking points and, and all that kind of stuff. So I highly recommend checking both of those books out. Yeah, sorry about going off on a tangent on Noam Chomsky there. Um, I have a lot of criticisms of him as well. I think that way he's responded to a lot of more modern post 9-11 crises has been extremely weak and even in some regards apologist for the official propaganda. I mean, I, I think he's just maybe slipping in his old age. So sorry, uh, back to the tail end of the Kosovo War. This is from an article about a, a captain named James Blunt III, um, UK citizen. And 
the article talks about the very end of the Kosovo war and sort of a, a really intense incident that happened as, as we were finishing off this operation. Um, I'll read a little bit from the article here. It starts with, Serbia has withdrawn from the campaign. Hundreds of thousands of refugees wait over the border to return to their homes. A column of 30,000 NATO troops is advancing towards Pristina airfield, a crucial strategic position. Unexpectedly, the Russian forces reach the airfield first. Russia, Serbia's patron, is hoping to stake a claim in the occupation. The soldiers are pointing their weapons at the incoming Allied troops. Quote, destroy, orders the U.S. general over the radio. Instructions from the very top. And this general that was ordering NATO forces to to attack Russian troops was Wesley Clark, um, who was one of the presidential candidates in 2004. James Blunt III was 25, a captain in the lifeguards and the lead officer at the front of the NATO column. He risked a court-martial by refusing to obey those orders from General Wesley Clark to attack the Russian forces. And James Blunt III says, quote, I was given the direct command to overpower the 200 or so Russians who were there. The soldiers directly behind me from, were from the parachute regiment, so they're obviously game for the fight. Quote, the direct command came in from General Wesley Clark. It was to overpower them. Various words were used that seemed unusual to us, such as destroy. And if you really think about what that would have meant if we had attacked Russian troops, I mean, you know, I mean, several times during the Cold War, things became hot. Spy planes were shot down and things like that, but at no point that I'm aware of, did we ever actually attack Russian troops? So even though we weren't in the middle of the Cold War during the 1990s, things could have escalated fairly quickly into a, another nuclear standoff type situation or, you know, possibly even a first strike scenario. So even though this event isn't very well known about, um, after this war wrapped up and the story was relayed by James Blunt, uh, the media has sort of... Um, made jokes about how James Blunt saved us from World War III. And I think he's sort of like a, he's a celebrity in England for other reasons. I think he's a musician or something. We're going to go back in time a little bit here, back to May of 1999, about a month before the end of the Kosovo War. Um, this is from History Commons. Uh, During a regional crisis, Clinton threatens to publicly expose Pakistan's support for bin Laden. In May of 1999, um, Pakistani General Musharraf actually tried to instigate a situation in Kashmir, um, which is a border between India and Pakistan that has been disputed for extremely long time. Um, he tried to instigate a situation and threatened to use nuclear missiles against India. Word of this threat and instigation um, filtered down to President Bill Clinton at the time. And two months later when uh, Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif comes to the U.S., Clinton is livid, and he yells at Sharif for breaking promises, not only about Kashmir, but, quote, also about failing to help with bin Laden. This is a quote from the History Commons entry. Clinton threatens to release a statement calling worldwide attention to Pakistan's support for terrorists. Clinton said to Sharif... You've put me in the middle today, set up the U.S. to fail, and I won't let it happen again. On August 26, 1999, 
the Russian Federation launched the Second Chechen War, which from Wikipedia was, quote, in response to the invasion of Dagestan by the Islamic International Brigade. Shortly after this, in September of 1999, um, there was a very publicized event in Russia that were simply called the Russian apartment bombings. From Wikipedia, it was a series of explosions that hit four apartment blocks in the Russian cities of Bunask, Moscow, and Volgonosk. Jesus Christ, guys. Um, I apologize for my horrible pronunciation of, of Russian. Please forgive me. Um, I'm probably going to continue to pronounce a lot of these names incorrectly, but just bear with me. Now, this is a very important event. This was a turning point in Russian society. A lot of people claim that this created a situation for Vladimir Putin um, to rise to popularity and create many of the preconditions for more draconian laws in Russia and more of a crackdown, all in the excuse and the name of terrorism. The apartment building bombings killed 293 people and injured 651. Um, several other bombs were diffused in Moscow at the time. Now, this is a, a very interesting part of this. Quote, a similar bomb was found and diffused in the Russian city of Ryazan on September 22, 1999. Two days later, Federal Security Service Director Nikolai Petrushev announced that the Ryazan incident had been a training exercise. This led some, such as Alexander Litvinenko and Anna Politkovskaya, to speculate that the apartment building bombings had been carried out by the Russian Secret Service, the FSB, formerly the KGB. Goes on to say, although there had been little evidence for their claims, many people claimed that the 1999 bombings were a false flag attack coordinated by different special services in order to either blackmail each other or to win public support for a new full-scale war in Chechnya, which boosted Prime Minister and former FSB director Vladimir Putin's popularity. But what I find incredibly important to take away from this is that those two people that I mentioned earlier, Litvinenko and Anna Politkovskaya, were both, I mean, from, from what I've read about them, and a lot of their writings are in Russian, but they were both pretty similar to a lot of the 9-11 truthers that we had in the United States. If you read some of the things that they've written about the Russian apartment bombings, they're extremely uh, similar to the writings by 9-11 truthers about the 9-11 attacks. They don't shy away from using the word false flags. They don't shy away from the phrase inside job. But what's incredibly remarkable about their stories is that they were both murdered. Litvinenko was uh, poisoned with a rare radioactive isotope called polonium many years later. And uh, Anna was shot and her body was later discovered. And they were trying to reveal that they believed that people in the FSB directly orchestrated these terrorist attacks to give Russia a pretext to go into Chechnya. But you'll find a suspicious absence in Western media coverage of the death of these two journalists and writers. They don't mention anything really about what these two people wrote about in detail. The idea that these Chechen apartment building bombings were a false flag attack. You only get one side of the story in the Western media. 
The reasons are were sort of more ambiguous and confusing in the way that the Western media portrayed it. In a Moscow courtroom, the five men convicted of killing Russian journalist Anna Polokovskaya learned their fate. Rustam Makhmudov, the gunman, and his uncle Lomali Gatukayev, who handled the logistics, both received life sentences. Polikovskaya, frequent critic of the Kremlin, uncovered corruption and reported extensively on Chechnya. The 48-year-old journalist was gunned down in the lobby of her Moscow apartment on October 7, 2006, President Vladimir Putin's 54th birthday. It isn't clear at this point who may have masterminded the attack. Russian authorities have denied any role in the killing, which caused international outrage. The former spy was poisoned using polonium-210, and Britain's intelligence agencies have claimed his death bears the hallmark of a state-sponsored assassination. Polonium-210 is highly radioactive. It does emit alpha particles, um, which are, can be stopped by a sheet of paper or by skin. It, to be dangerous, it has to be ingested. You have to eat it in food or breathe it in. But, once but I find that incredibly suspicious because... It's almost as if the Western media didn't want to give anybody ideas and didn't want to fill their minds with curiosity about this idea of false flag terrorism and what it really, what implications it really has globally and not just when thinking about it in the context of Russia only. Um, it's not a far leap to think, well, wait a second, what if other countries are doing these kind of attacks too? And what if the United States maybe? is involved in some of these kind of attacks. So I think as you go back through news archives in the United States and Western media outlets about the deaths of these two journalists, you will find that suspicious omission of the fact that they were basically the Russian equivalent of 9-11 truthers. Other disgusting neocon warmongers like Richard Pearl and David Frum wrote in their book, How to Win the War on Terror, The End of Evil. They wrote that the uh, Russian apartment building bombings were an inside job. They don't really provide much evidence. Uh, they just allege it as fact. And just on a side note, an interesting tie-in that happened right here is that in 1999, during this Chechen war, uh, from History Commons, it says, quote, at least 11 of the 9-11 hijackers travel or attempt to travel to Chechnya between 1996 and the year 2000. On November 5th, 1999, Congress passes a landmark bill repealing the Glass-Steagall Act. The Glass-Steagall Act was a bill that was enacted during the Great Depression that banned banks, security firms, and insurers from working together under the same corporate umbrella. It essentially prevented these entities from coexisting in the same company structure. They would have to be essentially separate companies. Now from History Commons, it says, uh, repealing the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 greatly reduced regulation of Wall Street and cleared the way for the cross ownership of banks, security firms, and insurers, naturally. The measure is approved in the Senate by a vote of 90 to eight and in the House by 362 to 57. Bill Clinton will sign the act into law on November 12, 1999. 
when the bill was repealed, people were already speculating that this could result in future financial meltdown. And of course, as we saw, it, it did. The Clinton administration presided over the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, a key deregulatory move widely seen as helping lead to the nation's financial collapse. The repeal ended the separation of commercial and investment banking. In this clip from before the 1999 vote, Senator Byron Dorgan of South Dakota predicted uh, how the repeal would be remembered on its 10th anniversary. We are, with this piece of legislation, moving towards greater risk. We are almost certainly moving towards substantial new concentration and mergers in the financial services industry. That is almost certainly not in the interest of consumers. And we are deliberately and certainly with this legislation moving towards inheriting much greater risk in our financial services industries. And so I come to the floor to say that I regret that I cannot support the legislation. Um, I think we will, in 10 years' time, look back and say we should not have done that because we forgot the lessons of the past. That was former Senator Byron Dorgan of North Dakota. The next event on the timeline um, will also defy, I think, many people's understanding of the post-9-11 police state or federal um, federal funding of local police and federal militarization of local police. Because on November 30th, 1999, uh, the Battle of Seattle WTO protests uh, essentially happened. Um, from Wikipedia, the scale of the demonstrations, even the lowest estimates, put the crowd at over 40,000. These are pictures of the Seattle riots that you've never seen before. It dwarfed any previous demonstration in the United States against a world meeting of any of the organizations generally associated with globalization. And of course, if anyone's seen footage from the Battle of Seattle or remembers it when it was happening in the, in the media, we saw one of the biggest police crackdowns ever of any protest since the early 70s in the United States. And I think this marked a pretty distinct turning point in the way that the federal government was collaborating with local police to stop um, social uprisings and protests. What do you make of the police response in Seattle? It was not surprising. Not surprising. I don't think any of us here are surprised with, you know, the firing of rubber bullets, the firing of wooden bullets, firing of tear gas. Immediately after um, the state of Washington and the city officials in Seattle just saw how overwhelming this protest was and how hard it was going to be to stop it, even with militarized police and SWAT riot police. The governor um, of Washington, Gary Locke, called in two battalions of National Guardsmen on December 1st. And of course, just like Ferguson or Occupy, um, this is not surprising at all, but Wikipedia says... The police response appears to have included many local residents, although it's known that many local residents were treated as protesters, even being tear gassed, despite having no part in the protests. Like that's any surprise whatsoever to anyone who's been to any protest with that kind of police response. On December 8th, 1999, the CIA concludes that bin Laden plans many imminent attacks, including some inside the U.S. From History Commons, quote, 
The CIA's Counterterrorism Center concludes in a classified report that bin Laden wants to inflict maximum casualties, cause massive panic, and score a psychological victory. He may be seeking to attack between 5 and 15 targets on the millennium. Quote, because the U.S. is bin Laden's ultimate goal, we must assume that several of these targets will be in the U.S. End quote. The next day, on December 9th, 1999, President Clinton is warned about al-Qaeda operatives living inside the United States. From History Commons, quote, As an al-Qaeda millennium plot is broken up in Jordan, attention is focused on that fact that two of the plotters were longtime U.S. residents. The National Security Advisor Sandy Berger sends a memo to President Clinton about the two men, Raid Hajazi and Khalid Deek. Hajazi had lived in California and then moved to Boston to drive a taxi for several years. The 9-11 Commission will say Berger tells Clinton was a naturalized U.S. citizen who had been in touch with extremists in the United States as well as abroad. Later in the month, counterterrorism czar Richard Clark will warn Berger that, quote, foreign terrorist sleeper cells are present in the United States and attacks in the U.S. are likely. One of the people involved in the Millennium Terror Plot, Deke, is arrested on December 11th, but he will eventually be released without being charged. A few days later, Clark authorizes a study that looks into Deke's connections, but no action will be taken when it's discovered that Deke's next-door neighbor is still living in Anaheim, California, and running an Al-Qaeda sleeper cell there. And then we, we head towards the Republican primaries um, in January 24th, 2000. John McCain, Alan Keyes, Steve Forbes, George W., Orrin Hatch, and Gary Bauer were all pitted against each other in the Republican primaries. And the Republican primaries got quite dirty. And this is when we would first really hear about Karl Rove and, and what kind of dirty tricks he played. From Wikipedia, quote, Allegations were made that Karl Rove was responsible for a South Carolina push-poll that used racist innuendo and tended to undermine support for McCain. The question in the poll was, would you be more likely or less likely to vote for John McCain for president if you knew he had fathered an illegitimate black child? In February 2000, CIA Director George Tennant testifies to Congress, and he says, quote, Since July 1998, working with foreign governments worldwide, we have helped to render more than two dozen terrorists to justice. More than half were associates of Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda organization. With regard to terrorism, since July of 1998, working with foreign governments worldwide, we have helped to render more than two dozen terrorists to justice. More than half were associates of Osama bin Laden's organization. These renditions have shattered terrorist cells and networks, thwarted terrorist plans, and in some cases, even prevented attacks from occurring. We are learning more about our perpetrators every day. Bin Laden is still foremost among these terrorists because of the immediacy and seriousness of the threat he poses. Everything that we have learned recently confirms our conviction that he wants to strike further blows against the United States. I'm going to hone in on the word render here because I'm not really aware of any terrorism trials that were happening in the United States that he's referring to. So I'm going to assume that he means they were actually rendered to other countries, legal systems. Many different places these terrorist suspects could have gone and they were probably tortured. More pre-9-11 cultural 
terrorism fears being put through the cultural zeitgeist. On February 7th, 2000, an aviation thriller novel predicts planes hitting WTC and other events similar to 9-11. From History Commons. Blackout, the new novel by aviation thriller writer John J. Nance, includes scenes which appear to predict aspects of the 9-11 attacks, such as a character suggesting the possibility of a Boeing 747 crashing into the World Trade Center because its pilots have been incapacitated by terrorists. Even... Even in this book, they have a section in the book that talks about how this may be some kind of insider trading plot so that people launching this attack may actually be helping and aiding people who are destined to profit um, off of these attacks. In the book, it says, this is from History Commons, that agents suggests terrorists profiting from insider trading. In a later scene, Bronxy suggests to McCabe that the attacks against aircraft may be motivated by financial gain. She says, how can you make lots of money from seriously undermining the airlines? How about selling their stock short or softening up the industry for financial takeovers? She suggests that the terrorists may already be getting precisely what they want from collapsing airline market prices. When asked if stock prices are down as a result of the plane crashes, Bronxy replies, big time, as much as a 10% drop. If this continues, they'll go into free fall. So... Just for clarification purposes, this is not referring to 9-11 at all. This was written over a year, or sorry, a little less than a year um, before 9-11, or over a year before 9-11 in a fictional thriller. We move on to April 2nd of 2000 um, from History Commons. Some complain Clinton administration focusing too much on terror. The Washington Post writes, quote, with little fanfare, Clinton has begun to articulate a new national security doctrine in which terrorists and other enemies of the nation state are coming to occupy the position once filled by a monolithic communist superpower. In his January 2000 State of the Union address, President Clinton predicts that terrorists and organized criminals will pose, quote, the major security threat to the U.S. in the coming decades. Counterterrorism czar Richard Clark predicts that Quote, U.S.'s new enemies will come after our weakness, our Achilles heel, which is largely here in the United States. As you can see, Clinton and his administration are ramping up and setting the framework for the war on terror towards the end of his presidency. We're already in the year 2000, and the rhetoric is just ramping up. And what's great about looking back at all this stuff is you can see that people were already on to the fact that the U.S. government was trying to turn terrorism into a Soviet-caliber threat, essentially fill the void of uh, the absence of the Cold War with a new threat that would seem just as imposing and scary to the American public. Now, I'm just going to briefly mention a program that started earlier than 9-11 that was later coined Total Information Awareness. Now, a great deal of this program is classified. It was discontinued shortly after 9-11 because people were so horrified by the branding of it, which was uh, the logo for Total Information Awareness was the planet Earth with the eye on top of a pyramid beaming a light onto the entire planet. No idea at all who came up with that marketing or branding for Total Information Awareness. Uh, they haven't taken credit for it. But, I mean, it goes along similar lines to sort of the secret black ops programs that Trevor Paglin revealed in his, his book of military patches. And all of those sort of play into 
conspiracy theory culture in the United States and play on people's paranoia. There's even a black ops program that had a picture of a gray alien with a chain around his neck being arrested by the U.S. military. So, I mean, I think it's not too far off to say that whoever designed the total information awareness logo was just trying to fuck with people and scare people into actually believing in sort of this more nefarious, scary, neural order conspiracy. I'm getting a little sidetracked again, but basically the reason I br I'm bringing up total information awareness is because on Wikipedia, on the Total Information Awareness page, it says, quote, the earliest version of Total Information Awareness employed a software called Groove, which was developed in 2000 by the American software industry entrepreneur and inventor of Lotus Notes, Ray Ozzy. The software developed by Ozzy makes it possible for analysts at many different government agencies to share intelligence data instantly, and it links specialized programs that are designed to look for patterns of suspicious behavior. As I was saying, most of this program is still classified. We don't know exactly how it morphed or what it exactly turned into or what facets of it turned into what, but I think it's fairly safe to say, and other journalists have, have made the same conclusion, that total information awareness was rebranded and put under wraps and sort of taken out of the public consciousness. The program remained, but it, it existed under a different name. And that name was originally Thin Thread, and it was turned into Stellar Wind and Trailblazer by Michael Hayden, um, who was the head of the NSA at the time. But this is another one of those mysterious aspects of pre-9-11 is... We only have little bits and pieces of information about total information awareness and the Homeland Security Agency existing before 9-11, but my opinion on that is that even if they did exist before 9-11, the Bush administration made a concerted effort to hide their existence before 9-11 uh, for obvious reasons. I think that you know, total information awareness pretty much can, uh, contradicts what we understand about the main 9-11 excuse, which is that the agencies couldn't share information with each other or chose not to share information with each other. So all we know really is that software developed for total information awareness was developed in 2000, over a year before 9-11. On June 5th, 2000, NORAD exercise simulates hijackers planning to crash plane into the White House and Statue of Liberty. Not that this will come as a surprise to most of our listeners, but this is just an example of how government agencies like NORAD automatically had within them self-contained protocols to deal with these kinds of unlikely but potentially catastrophic scenarios. So even if Bush took over the White House, you know, after the transition, it's not going to mean that he would have to somehow reinstate some sort of policy to do this. The policy, you know, of NORAD foreseeing these kind of scenarios and training people to deal with them was sort of, there was content, there's continuity between NORAD under the Clinton administration and NORAD under the Bush administration, just like there would be for most of those other kinds of government agencies, like the IRS, for example. So I think that's really all that that illustrates is that you know, a lot of people are like, well, what were they supposed to do? You know, what was NORAD supposed to do? Um, well, they had protocols already before the Bush administration, like automatically in place. On June 6 of 2000, George W. Bush was elected the Republican candidate um, of the Republican presidential primaries. 
Um, it was down to him and John McCain and, uh, and George W. Bush uh, won. Shortly after that, on June 8th, 2000, Paul Bremer was one of the main people behind the Terrorism Commission Report. And this is very similar to the Philip Zelikow terrorism report that was written a few years earlier. Paul Bremer, again, just like Philip Zelikow, uses Pearl Harbor as an example of how we could be taken surprised by a catastrophic terrorist attack. He doesn't say, quote, a new Pearl Harbor, but he is using very, very similar rhetoric. I'm very curious as to where this rhetoric started in the first place. The earliest example I could find of it is that Philip Zelikow terrorism report. But maybe listeners out there might be able to find something even earlier from someone peddling terrorism fears using uh, the example of a new Pearl Harbor. And we're going to play a clip right here of Bremer talking about it. We said, quote, in extraordinary circumstances, when a catastrophe is beyond the capabilities of local, state, and other federal agencies, or is directly related to an armed conflict overseas, the president may, the president may want to designate DOD as a lead federal agency. We do not recommend that it happen, but we think that it is only prudent to make contingency plans for such an event, and the only way to make the contingency plans is to think about it ahead of time. If you think about this kind of a consequence ahead of time and exercise it, the chances are much better that civil liberties that we're all used to will be protected. And we remember that it was in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, in the chaos and confusion of a catastrophic attack against America in December 1941, that civil liberties of some people in this country were abridged. And we believe the way best to avoid that is to think about it ahead of time. That is the heart of our recommendation on the Defense Department. In order to know about their plans, you're going to have to be willing to take some risks in engaging informants here and overseas who might be unsavory. And as we believe that it's important, as you've suggested, Mr. Chairman, for there to be more resources dedicated to intelligence, and in particular to CIA, to FBI, and most prominently to NSA. Now, the next event may come as a shock to certain people, either in the 9-11 truth movement or people who tend to trust Richard Clark and think that he is a, a really good guy who was mostly telling the truth about the Bush administration, but makes me question his judgment and also um, his affiliations. And uh, I think this, this singular talk that he gave on top of all those other bioterrorism talks is very curious. The reason why is because on June 19th, 2000, Richard Clark shared the stage with none other than Richard Pearl, one of the most evil, crazy fucking neoconservatives on the planet, to discuss, quote, cyber attacks and national security. And they hyped up terrorism fears. They hyped up cyber terror. The American Enterprise Institute looked at cyber attacks and national security today. Their panel discussion included former and current federal security officials and others. It's about an hour and 40 minutes. ...has chaired the Interagency Counterterrorism Committee. And with that, we'll open the floor to Dick Clark. Thank you, Trey. And I want to thank not only you, but AEI for having this conference today. Are we, are we talking about people... Uh, disturbing your emails, or are we talking about the threat to national security? Finally, we have Richard Pearl. 
Richard is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, from 1981 to 1987, Richard served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy and Chairman of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization High-Level Defense Group. Thank you very much, Trey. Before I say anything else, I can't resist commenting on the um, um, the foresight of the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation hiring for their security a guy whose nickname is Stash. <laughs> and, you know, Abby and I have talked about this for years, and it's mostly Abby's uh, thinking on this, that the next quote-unquote war will be sort of like the war on hackers or the war on cyber terror. As we know, the United States has, ad has admitted to developing one of the most crazy cyber terrorism weapons ever devised, Stuxnet, to destroy the nuclear centrifuges in Iran's nuclear program. From History Commons again. August 28, 2000. Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda's chief bomb maker recognized in aerial photo. And if you're thinking to yourself, how did they get this aerial photo? Was it a satellite photo? No, it was a drone photo, which I'm sure was of much higher quality. Quote, agents of the DGSE, the French intelligence agency, examined an aerial photo and spot Al-Qaeda leader Midhat Mercy standing close to Osama bin Laden. Mercy is considered Al-Qaeda's chief bomb maker and chemical weapons expert. The quality of the aerial photo must have been extremely high in order for Mercy and bin Laden to be recognized, but it has not yet been explained how such a photo was obtained or what other photos of bin Laden or other Al-Qaeda leaders have been taken before 9-11. Less than two weeks later, the U.S. officially begins flying Predator drones over Afghanistan to track bin Laden. I mean, it's possible that this information about the French intelligence service was planted to make it look like we didn't obtain the images, but I mean, we very well could have been flying, pred flying predator drones in that area before the official announcement and simply just leaked that information through another source. I mean, that's what the U S government still does today. They use stooges like Eli Lake and even Rosie Gray who works for Buzzfeed, Miriam Elder for Buzzfeed. If you if you read obvious hagiographic U.S. state propaganda and obvious U.S. state propaganda outlets like, you know, maybe Fox News or something like that, you're not going to be as likely to digest it. You're going to be resistant to it. But if you read U.S. state propaganda on BuzzFeed in between all these cat slideshows and shit, um, it goes down easier. It doesn't feel necessarily like you're being bombarded with something that has a particular agenda or is a leaked piece of propaganda from the U.S. State Department. So my thoughts on this French intelligence agency thing, I mean, it feels to me like probably the United States had them, you, you know, France you, as a proxy send the pictures to them or, or that was reported in the press. Now we finally arrive at a particularly infamous event that happened at the tail end of the Clinton presidency. And that is the document written by the Project for a New American Century titled Rebuilding America's Defenses. This is that infamous document that was devised by some of the most hardcore neoconservatives in Washington, D.C. at the time. The document's mission statement is, quote, 
from the belief that America should seek to preserve and extend its position of global leadership by maintaining the preeminence of U.S. military force. In the document, they go on to establish four core missions for the U.S. military. And those missions are defend the American homeland, fight and decisively win multiple simultaneous major theater wars, perform the constabulary duties associated with shaping the security environment in critical regions, transform U.S. forces to exploit the, quote, revolution in military affairs. And the document goes on to say, to carry out these core missions, we need to provide sufficient force and budgetary allocations. In particular, the United States must maintain nuclear strategic superiority, restore the personal strength of today's force to roughly the levels anticipated in the base force outlined by the Bush administration, reposition U.S. forces to respond to 21st century strategic realities by shifting permanently based forces to Southeast Europe and Southeast Asia, and by changing in naval deployment patterns to reflect growing U.S. strategic concerns in East Asia, a.k.a. Eurasia. The two most controversial parts of this document, one of them is a section about race-specific bioweapons and how effective they might be and what their usefulness might be. The most famous section from this document is where the term a new Pearl Harbor comes from originally. Um, literally the phrase, a new Pearl Harbor. Please correct me if I'm wrong on that. If, if other neoconservatives or military figures or U.S. government people were predicting a similar type of event or using that phraseology, please uh, email us at info at mediaroots.org or tweet at me at Fluorescent Gray on Twitter. Um, but here is the quote. After all that stuff I just read, after all the, the different goals they were laying out about what they want to do with our military... In the document, it says, quote, Further, the process of transformation of the military, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. I'm not going to go into too much more detail about PNAC, um, who the signatories were for this particular document and also who was behind PNAC. Abby and I went over that in quite a lot of detail on the DC think tanks create Cold War tipping point podcast. We covered the history of neoconservatism, its influence over DC, the history of PNAC, its founders, and also the think tank that PNAC eventually morphed into after PNAC disbanded. Not exactly like, but similar to Blackwater changing its name to Z and then Academy. This is another little tidbit from History Commons. In September of 2000 and after, including throughout the Bush administration, it is reported that the U.S. Secret Service is using an air surveillance system called Tiger Wall. This serves to ensure enhanced physical security at a high-value asset location by providing early warning signs of airborne threats. Tiger Wall provides the Secret Service with a geographic display of aircraft activity and provides security personnel long-range camera systems to classify and identify aircraft. So this kind of ties into the idea that the Secret Service also had their own Stinger missiles. So it makes sense now that it wouldn't just be the Secret Service running out onto the White House lawn, looking up into the sky for a plane coming in and then shooting in its direction with a Stinger missile. I mean, they probably had like computer guided missiles. They weren't just regular like 
you know, militia style stinger missiles like, um, you know, that Iraqi insurgents would use or something. And we also know now that the Secret Service had stinger missiles located in the South Tower of the World Trade Center on 9-11 um, in case of an emergency, emergency situation like a plane being flown into one of the buildings. I'm not sure if they had it in WTC-7 or one of the, either of the towers. From History Commons, from September 7th to October 2000, predator flights over Afghanistan are initiated then halted. The first predator flight over Afghanistan on September 7th, 2000, captures bin Laden circled by security in his tarmac farm complex. An unmanned spy plane called the Predator begins flying over Afghanistan, showing incomparably detailed real-time video and photographs of the movements of what appears to be bin Laden and his aides. It flies successfully over Afghanistan 16 times. President Clinton is impressed by a two-minute video of bin Laden crossing the street towards a mosque inside his Tarnak Farms complex. Bin Laden is surrounded by a team of a dozen armed men creating a professional forward security perimeter as he moves. The Predator has been used since 1996 in the Balkans and in Iraq. One Predator crashes on takeoff and another is chased by a fighter, but it apparently identifies Bin Laden on three occasions. Its use is stopped in Afghanistan after a few trials, mostly because seasonal winds are picking up. So the weird thing is, the Clinton administration and Richard Clark has been saying this whole time that the Predator drones aren't armed and we have to go through all these protocols to get them armed and that's why they couldn't take out Bin Laden. They were just sort of testing out this technology and using it to surveil him in like real-time aerial video and shit like that. But the strange thing is, on September 15th, 2001, it says on History Commons that CIA Director George Tennant apparently inaccurately tells President Bush the unmanned predator surveillance aircraft that was now armed with Hellfire missiles had been operating for more than a year out of Uzbekistan to provide real-time evidence of Afghanistan. So if I'm reading that right, it seems like George Tennant is either lying to President Bush and telling them that the, Af that the predator drones were equipped with Hellfire missiles since they've been operating, or... He's not lying, and that's actually the truth, and that they later revised sort of the official account. You know, in a similar way to how NORAD and the FAA and all these government agencies revised their timelines over time in terms of their air response on 9-11, how when you—the farther you get from 9-11, like, say, like, you go all the way forward to 2004, you'll get a different official timeline from the government than you will back in, like, 2001— or 2002, that they revise things, they change things, they update, you know, the material to make it fit better. And in this case, it could just be another scenario where later on, when flack started to come towards Bill Clinton about his um, inability to prevent 9-11 or bin Laden from attacking the United States, it could have been one of those things where they were actually trying to all sort of get together, Clinton, Tennant, Clark, get on the same page with each other and all repeat a lie, which was that the Predator drones weren't armed. Now, I'm just speculating on that. 
it could be either one. It could be that they're actually all telling the truth and that the predator drones for some reason weren't armed, but they were just using them for fun to surveil bin Laden over 16 times. It just seems really strange to me that they would have gone through all that trouble, spent the money on the, all the fuel just to be able to surveil him that much if they wanted to take him out or kill him. I mean, again, it goes along the similar lines of what other people have claimed that there was a sort of a policy of false engagement on bin Laden and that in essence, what we were doing was more like we were protecting him while we were tracking him and surveilling him rather than doing anything to actually prevent him. So there's a lot of unknowns there. And it doesn't matter how much information you get because there's people, as I've said, fighting over, there's different factions fighting over the 9-11 official narrative still to this day. I mean, we even saw um, Mike Wallace get up in President Clinton's face in an interview from like two years ago or three years ago, maybe. And Clinton got super pissed at him for suggesting that he had dropped the ball on bin Laden and, and Wallace mentioned all these different things. And Clinton was extremely upset, probably the most upset he's ever been on television before. Keep in mind that we're pretty much at the end of the uh, 2000 presidential elections. And we're heading up on the very first debate between George W. Bush and Al Gore on October 3rd, 2000. Uh, this particular debate was about domestic policy. Ralph Nader was blocked from attending a closed-circuit television broadcast of the debate, even though he had a ticket. The next debate was on October 11, 2000. Directly after this debate, the next day was the infamous USS Cole bombing, which um, from Wikipedia, the official sort of record of what happened is, quote, a suicide attack against the United States Navy guided missile destroyer USS Cole. Um, a small boat loaded with explosives rammed into the side of the USS Cole as the ship re refueled in the port of Aden, killing 17 Navy personnel. I have no reason to think that this was anything but a senseless act of terrorism. As far as I know, Barry, nobody has claimed anything. Um, and uh, there is, as I said, if it appears to be an act of terrorism. If, as it now appears, this was an act of terrorism, it was a despicable and cowardly act. We will find out who was responsible and hold them accountable. If their intention was to deter us from our mission of promoting peace and security in the Middle East, they will fail utterly. A story came out a few years ago that suggested that, that there was a lot of foreknowledge about the USS Cole attacks. And this story actually came out in the form of um, the original Able Danger revelations by Colonel Anthony Schaefer. Kurt Weldon, one of the Congress members who was an advocate for Colonel Anthony Schaefer's story, he, he was one of the guys pushing it into the public eye for a while, Colonel Anthony Schaefer. He and many other people in this unit claimed that they had Muhammad Atta's photograph and they were tracking him previous to 9-11, actually in the year 2000. They were tracking the Hamburg cell, the White House, and most of the U.S. government tried to suppress this information when it came out. The, actual, the Pentagon actually tried to burn 
most of the copies of Anthony Schaefer's book, Operation Darkheart, because he revealed the Able Danger program in it. But in the Able Danger program, uh, the military special operations command ran the high-tech dragnet that searched for terrorist linkages. The terrorist associations were mapped out on large charts, according to Schaefer and other Able Danger colleagues, during the program that operated between 1999 and 2001. However, following Schaefer's attempts to broker an arrangement that would have drawn the FBI into the operation, the program was shut down. Besides claiming to identifying Atta from a grainy photograph prior to September 11th, the intelligence team also tried to warn the Pentagon not to allow the USS Cole to make a refueling stop in Yemen five years ago, Weldon said. It's normally a routine operation. The crew on the Cole doesn't have the slightest suspicion the ship is about to be attacked. Uh, this is an actual quote from Kurt Weldon. Able Danger members also identified the threat to the USS Cole two weeks before the attack, and two days before the attack were screaming not to let the ship come into the harbor at Yemen because they knew something was going to happen. End quote. The destroyer, one of the most powerful ships in the U.S. Navy, is on its way to the Persian Gulf when it stops at Yemen to take on fuel. How then did the attackers get so close? On October 16th through the 23rd of 2000, NORAD held exercises that included scenarios of attempted suicide plane crashes into the U.N. headquarters in New York. This one just involved, um, you know, the idea of a suicide hijacking attack. The previous exercise that I forgot to mention earlier, um, the, one, the other one that was about crashing a plane into the Statue of Liberty and the World Trade Center, that one actually involved... A situation where one of the planes would have explosives on board in order to make the impact more damaging when it hit the the World Trade Center. On October 17th was the final Gore versus Bush debate. And in some ways, Gore actually positioned himself slightly more to the right of Bush on foreign policy. I thought the best example of, of a way to handle a situation was East Timor when we provided logistical support to the Australians support that uh, that uh, only we can provide I thought that was a good model but we can't be all things to all people in the world Jim mm -hmm. and I think that's where maybe the vice president and I begin to have some differences I am I'm worried about over committing our military around the world I want to be judicious in its use you mentioned Haiti I, did, I wouldn't have sent troops to Haiti I didn't think it was a mission worthwhile it was a nation building mission and uh, it was not very successful. It cost us billions, a couple of billions of dollars, and I'm not so sure democracy's any better off in Haiti than it was before. Are we going to step up to the plate as a nation the way we did after World War II? The way that uh, generation of heroes said, okay, the United States is going is to be the leader. And the world benefited tremendously from the courage that they showed in, in those post-war years. I I'm not so sure the role of the United States is to go around the world and say this is the way it's got to be. We can help. And maybe it's just our difference in government, the way we view government. I mean, I want to empower people. I don't, you know, I want to help people help themselves, not have government tell people what to do. I just don't think it's the role of the United States to walk into a country and say, we do it this way, so should you. On October 24th through the 26th, the military holds exercises that rehearse responses to a plane crash at the Pentagon. You'll probably remember from watching any, you know, generic 
typical 9-11 conspiracy documentary, whenever they go into that whole Pentagon debate part, they always show a picture of military generals like with a little miniature scale model of the Pentagon and broken plane model plane parts sort of in the middle of the center courtyard in the Pentagon. And that picture is a picture of this exercise that they did. Um, in one of the scenarios, the mock scenarios, a plane that crashed into the Pentagon actually kills 341 people. And apparently they actually literally lit this little model airplane on fire and put it in the middle of the scale model of the Pentagon, which just seems really odd to me. I hope some of those military generals that were sitting around watching this exercise breathed in some of the melting plastic fumes and got a little bit of brain damage or hopefully just a little bit of cancer from that. On November 4th, 2000, George Bush was, quote, elected president of the United States. Anybody who lived through that election who was old enough to remember how much of a fucking nightmare it was that for over a month, we still did not know who was president of the United States after the November 4th election night. Networks first announced that Gore won. Gore even did a little acceptance speech live on television. And then the networks announced that Bush won. And a lot of people say that it was Fox News that announced it first, and that's what caused the chain reaction. In reality, the election was a complete disaster. There was a series of different events. So first, what triggered it was that, according to the popular vote count, Al Gore was the winner on the election night. The problem was the election, the electoral vote count um, who actually won Florida specifically, which could have tipped the election either way with the electoral vote count, was up for dispute because I, I guess the vote count between Bush and Gore in Florida, the margin was something like under 2,000 votes. So because of it was so close in that regard, even though Gore indisputably won the actual popular vote count, Technically, George W. Bush would have been president if he won Florida because the electoral votes, of course, trump the popular vote. It doesn't matter if someone wins the popular vote if they win more electoral votes in the electoral college. So eventually, um, in the next few weeks, um, each candidate did their own version of their victory speech. None of them gave their con the concession speech. Gore did not give his concession speech, um, or if they gave a partial concession, they did not rescind their concessions. So watching the media trying to react to the unfolding situation is, is entertaining, but it's also really cringeworthy in retrospect, because when you watch footage of them trying to examine this situation as it's happening, as the recount is being done, the hanging chads, um, the, the Supreme Court ruling, the Florida Supreme Court ruling, then the actual Supreme Court ruling. Um, it's extremely confusing to follow. And um, go ahead. Uh, the, the, the issue that the Supreme Court has focused on is the uneven treatment of voters. They, they seem to have tried to avoid the constitutional issue directly, but um, they have said that the state Supreme Court ratified the uneven treatment of voters. That is that... Um, the standards for what chat, what, what what ballots count and what ballots don't count, 
are uh, w were inconsistent between counties. There's something else very important here, Jeffrey, too. It's what's called a per curiam decision, which means that no right. justice has their name on it at the moment, which tells right. us something about the struggle in the court. But even before we get to the court, let me go to George Stephanopoulos very quickly here, because, George, this effectively ends the election. It has ended the election. And Peter, literally one of the closest elections in American history. 104 million Americans voted, only a 300,000 vote difference. 600 votes approximately separated the um, Gore and Bush in the state of Florida, and now by one vote on the Supreme Court, this election is over. What this means is that the slate of electors that has already been certified will now have conclusive effect. They support George Bush, they're going to the Electoral College from the state of Florida. George Bush wins 271. 267. Come back to you in just a minute, but just let me tell you that in dissent here were Justices Ginsburg, Souter, Stevens, and Breyer. They're in the dissent. That's the liberal wing uh, for the most part of the Supreme Court. Back to Jackie Judd at the court itself. Bush versus Gore was the Supreme Court case, and it was argued in December 11, 2000, and it was decided on December 12, 2000. And they decided in favor of stopping the recount, which technically... I guess at that point, George Bush won, according to the last vote count. By pushing to get it done before midnight, it sounds from what we can make of the decision, Rehnquist and the four others who joined him awarded the presidency to George Bush. Essentially, if you were a voter back then and you wanted to know who was president of the United States, it would actually have been much less confusing to just not watch TV or read the newspaper for a month and then just read it a month later after the Supreme Court ruling. And this is where Clinton's war on terror ends. Maybe some of you out there are wondering, well, what did we learn from this episode? Or, you know, what the hell was Robbie going over all this for? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, after looking into all this stuff myself, it made me remember a figure that we sort of didn't really discover, but just you know, decided to look into more closely, sort of a guy who was involved in PNAC and who's been involved in a lot of this neoconservative thought for a while, but hasn't really gotten very much attention by people in alternative media. And that guy's name is Robert Kagan. And it reminds me of some of the things that he's said over the years. You write in the New Republic that uh, from 89 to 2003, 1989 to 2003, a 14-year period spanning three very different presidencies, the U.S. deployed large numbers of troops or engaged in extended campaigns of aerial bombing and missile attacks on nine different occasions. Panama, Somalia, Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq, of course, in 2003. That's an average of one significant military intervention every 19 months. That's the greater, greatest frequency of any time in our history. Yeah. We think of ourselves as a peace-loving people, and, and we are a peace-loving people, but at the same time, uh, we have a strong martial tradition. Uh, no modern democracy uh, considers uh, electing generals more often than we do. In Europe, it's inconceivable to nominate a military man uh, for office. We think about it all the time, whether it's Colin Powell or Wes Clark. And for a nation that, uh, that does love peace, that frequency uh, of intervention after the end of the Cold War uh, is a pretty dramatic sign that throughout our history, whether from the Revolution and the Civil War, First World War, Second World War, Americans have always believed uh, that military power, uh, though to be used as a last resort, we always say, uh, is nevertheless an essential element of foreign policy. And I think we're, we're, we're still like that today. And it doesn't really matter 
which administration is in power, Republican or Democrat. Still like that today. Why? Why is this country this way? To my mind, the most important aspect of American nationalism is our common commitment to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, uh, the universal rights of man. You actually say it's the most important foreign policy it's document the most ever. Exactly. It's the most important foreign policy document because by its very nature, a belief in the universal rights of man means that the United States is both affected by everything that happens to others around the world, or at least Americans perceive that they're affected by it, and they also have some role if they have the capacity uh, to advance those rights. Based on just looking at administrations of recent years, there's always a great deal more continuity between administrations, even when the party changes, then there is discontinuity. There was a lot more continuity than people want to remember, I think, between the Clinton administration's approach to Iraq and the Bush administration's approach to Iraq. Uh, the Clinton administration did a similar thing in Iraq in 1998 when they conducted Operation Desert Fox and, and did a broad-scale bombing of Saddam Hussein's uh, suspected weapons programs. And for all we know, they did a great deal of damage. I'm not sure that in retrospect, these are hard decisions to make, very risky, that the Clinton administration uh, should have followed through on what were at least the instincts of some of its, of its key members. Batavia. This goes against every fiber of my being to say this, but in some ways, you know, in isolation, some of the things Robert Kagan has said are, are absolutely right. They can only really be explained by the idea that there is some sort of force driving United States foreign policy essentially needs to be explained or needs to be rationalized, not just to sell wars to the public and to sell bombing campaigns to the public, but also it needs to be rationalized and couched in intellectual thought so that the people carrying out this foreign policy can also use that as a crutch, maybe even in their own minds or to their fellow policymakers or to the people who work underneath them. But when you actually read Robert Kagan's writings about why he thinks we have a neoconservative style foreign policy and why that's the best way to go, I mean, a lot of it actually makes sense. If you look at it from the perspective of, of someone like him, it's trying to rationalize and explain and sort of with the sort of this defensive posture, a system which has been in place for over a century, which is inherently immoral. And I think one of the best ways to describe this kind of thought from people like Robert Kagan, Francis Fukuyama, William Crystal, Richard Pearl, it's not from nationalism necessarily. It's not from racism. It's not from even being you know, maybe even a, a warmonger at heart or being some kind of sociopathic, bloodthirsty type individual. I think at its core, this defensive posture that's then rationalized and couched in intellectual thought comes from cognitive dissonance, essentially. And I'm sure people have heard that term tossed around before. Um, cognitive dissonance, you know, a lot of the time you might think it just means like mental friction, um, an unpleasant thought where you have two conflicting beliefs that are sort of colliding with each other that don't quite match up. And that causes, you know, a form of mental anguish that might not be conscious for a lot of people. But on this website, Psychology World, they go into cognitive dissonance um, a little more in depth. And it says cognitive dissonance theory is based on three fundamental assumptions. One, humans are sensitive to inconsistencies between actions and beliefs. So, for example, say you consider yourself a civilized, you know, moral human being, an upstanding citizen, but the country you live in is killing thousands or even millions around the world 
in your name, that can lead to the first thing on here, being sensitive to inconsistencies between actions and belief. Even though they're not your own actions, they're actions that are associated with you, whether you're a nationalist or a patriot or you know loyal to the president or not, because it's the country you live in. You pay for it with your tax money. Two, recognition of this inconsistency will cause dissonance and will motivate an individual to, resol to resolve the dissonance. Once you recognize that you have violated one of your principles, according to this theory, you won't just say, quote, oh, well, you'll feel some sort of mental anguish about this. The degree of dissonance, of course, will vary with the importance of your belief attitude principle and with the degree of inconsistency between your behavior and this belief. In any case, according to the theory, the greater the dissonance, the more you will be motivated to resolve it. So let's think about this for instance. You know, certain cultures in the world um, maybe don't hold themselves up as individuals in the same esteem that Americans do. They're not maybe as prideful or as egotistical about themselves. You know, certain third world countries are quite violent and you know, people encounter death on a regular basis if you're, you know, a citizen in some of those countries. So I think for an American, just in general, the inconsistency between your behavior and this belief can be rather large. So again, even though American foreign policy isn't directly, you know, my behavior or your behavior, it's inescapable that in some ways it is associated with us. We help fund it. We live in this country. We support this country indirectly in different ways. We pay money to the corporations that help fund these wars. So I think that everybody in America, at least to some degree, suffers from that type of cognitive dissonance or has suffered from it at one point. Like when you learned, you know, quote unquote, woke up about, you know, what American foreign policy or the American government really does all around the world. And you, you know, you kind of more or less were just a normal citizen before that. That would cause cognitive dissonance. And a lot of people resolve that cognitive dissonance by changing beliefs, which is number three on the cognitive dissonance um, definition here. Number three, dissonance will be resolved in one of three basic ways. A, change beliefs. And it goes on to say, perhaps the simplest way to resolve dissonance between actions and beliefs is simply to change your beliefs. You could, of course, just decide that cheating is okay. That would make that would take care of any dissonance. However, if the belief is fundamental and important to you, such a course of action is unlikely. Therefore, though this is the simplest option for resolving dissonance, it's probably not the most common. And it goes on to say that B, one of the ways to resolve cognitive dissonance is to change actions. A section option would be to make sure that you never do this action again. And that's not really possible with someone who lives in the United States or who lives in any Western country that's supporting this kind of war machine or imperialist behavior. You can't simply just make your government stop doing it in your name. It doesn't work that way. So B is not really possible in this scenario that we're talking about. But the next one, I think, is a perfect example of what neoconservatism does or what function neoconservative foreign policy serves for DC elites, intellectual thinkers, scholarly types who write about American history, people of that ilk who are still on the side of American foreign policy and American morals will most likely see change their perception of the action. A third and more complex method of resolution is to change the way you view, remember, or perceive your action. 
in more colloquial terms, you would rationalize your actions. For example, you might decide that the test you cheated on was for a dumb class that you didn't need anyways. Or you might say to yourself that everyone cheats, so why not you? In other words, you think about your action in a different manner or con context so that it no longer appears to be inconsistent with your beliefs. If you reflect on this series of mental gymnastics for a moment, you will probably recognize why cognitive dissonance has become so popular. And I think Robert Kagan is a perfect example of that. And he is shooting for intellectual thinkers, intellectual, influential, political, geopolitical thinkers, world leaders, politicians, diplomats, think tank members. That's the audience that he's going for. A lot of these people are so embedded in the system already. They're not, you know, all of a sudden going to retire and start becoming activists and change their beliefs. So of course they need to change their perceptions of those actions. And I would even argue that neoconservatism sprung up originally based on sort of the moral dilemma that a lot of these early Trotskyite, more liberal leaning people had, you know, embedded in their psyche they may actually be emotional, feeling, empathetic human beings. But over time, maybe they appear to be more sociopathic and more Machiavellian because of this cognitive dissonance that they suffered or that they're maybe even still suffering from. So even people like Irving Kristol, who, quote unquote, was a liberal who was mugged by reality, you know, some of that liberalism that even drives some of the worst parts of neoconservative foreign policy, some of the good parts of that liberalism, the parts that are caring, you know, want to stop unnecessary killings around the world, those parts maybe still cause cognitive dissonance. And, and this is what neoconservatism has turned into over time because it's, they've found it's the best and most effective way to essentially let people be able to rationalize the horrific nature of American foreign policy and twist it around to actually make it seem moral and legitimate. So sorry for that really long rant, but I just had this thought the other day and I just thought it was really important to, you know, to give another, to attempt, I guess, to portray neoconservatism in a different way than it has been portrayed before, at least on this show and, and some other shows that you may listen to. And that's not to say in any way that I'm defending or that I believe in what they're saying at all. I just think that cognitive dissonance explains this rationalization that they've made, this bargain that they've made to essentially bury away their morals and their humanity for a bullshit rationalization for imperialism. By the end of the Clinton presidency, it seems logical to conclude that neoconservatives you know, in the Weekly Standard, maybe weren't too thrilled with his presidency. I'm sure not just for the sex scandals, but because he wasn't aggressive enough about his Saddam Hussein, even though he bombed him twice. But interestingly, William Crystal said that they lost a third of their subscribers to the Weekly Standard because they would defend President Clinton when most of the Republican Party, including even Fox News, was going against him for things like Bosnia. So there's definitely some support there. Um, one of the first controversies we had at the Standard was when Bob Kagan and I wrote an editorial together. I think it was the first piece we ever wrote together. We just met, really, we'd met a little bit before, but we'd become friendly just, just since the Standard had started. We wrote an editorial in December 95 defending Clinton's intervention in Bosnia. 
the military intervention in Bosnia and chastising Republicans for tending to criticize it. And we, we lost about, I think, a quarter of our original subscribers uh, to the Weekly Standard at that point who, who, who wrote in saying they didn't subscribe to a conservative magazine so they could read editorials defending Bill Clinton. And I know I said I was going to mostly pin this on Clinton and the, and the Clinton administration and not try to talk about neoconservatives and what influence they may have had over Clinton, because that would in some ways seem like I'm making excuses for him. But I'm going to go back on what I said a little bit, because after doing this episode, and this, and this was after I had already finished part one of the episode, I found a clip of Clinton after the project for the New American Century was already pretty prominent and writing a lot of letters to him, mention the phrase a new century in the same paragraph as weapons of mass destruction. It's pretty crazy. My concern is to prepare our people for a new century, not only in positive ways, like creating a big international financial framework that works for them, as we just talked about, but also to make sure we have the tools to protect ourselves against chemical and biological weapons. So. Now, I wanted to bring up another psychology term to sort of wrap up Clinton's war on terror, but also explain in part what we will see eventually with the Bush foreign policy and even the Obama foreign policy and the war on terror in general through all three presidencies. And this psychology term is called projective identification. And I'll read you the definition from Wikipedia. Projective identification differs from simple projection and that projective identification can become a self-fulfilling prophecy whereby a person believing something false about another influences or coerces that person to carry out that precise projection. In extreme cases, the recipient may lose any sense of their real self and become reduced to the passive carriers of outside projections as if possessed by them. This can apply, this has mainly been applied throughout psychology or psychotherapy specifically in cases in which a psychotherapist is conducting psychoanalysis on a patient and the psychotherapist determines what the patient's ailments are based completely on projection, not based on reality. The psychotherapist may have a completely false idea about what's ailing this person or what's causing them strife, either in their childhood or, or whatever. And by creating this situation of projective identification, the psychotherapist may unwittingly, without meaning to, actually inflict the very ailment that he was projecting onto the patient in the first place. So that's kind of what we're dealing with here. And I've gone on too long already as it is going on about this concept, but Think about it in terms of the war on terror and this idea that there is a nexus point between this sort of more liberal, I would say liberal imperialism guilt sort of reaction to 9-11, which was that this was blowback. Of course, this is bound to happen, happen to us at a certain point. We've been going all over the world and fucking with it and killing, bombing people all over the world for decades. So, of course, terrorists would eventually attack us. There's a nexus point between that and the idea that we created this in the first place, but not because of blowback, but because we already started a machine. We started laying the framework for a war on terror, a more, much more coherent 
and much more determined and specific war on terror than in any other time in American history. We started this framework before 9-11 during the Clinton administration. We started surveilling all of these supposed terrorists. We started monitoring their phone calls. We started tracking them in the United States when they would fly in and out of the country. Intelligence agencies across the world started sharing information with us about their activities. We started flying drones for the first time to get photography of them on the ground in Afghanistan and all these different countries. But what we did was we also started to shift our national security policy in the United States towards one of not just containment like the Soviet Union, but one of engagement and surveillance and data mining on terrorist networks. And the movie Power of Nightmares perfectly applies here because even though Adam Curtis doesn't really go into the Clinton administration too much at all, in reality, I mean, a lot of this idea of the power of nightmares, that terrorists could use biological, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, you know, the worst case scenario situations that a crazy zealot might get a hold of a weapon of mass destruction and then launching it in the United States. These nightmares fueled, in large part, a shift in policy. And if you can think about it this way, once a policy starts to shift, once these policymakers start to bring up these issues, once other people start echoing them, Richard Clark, Gary Hart, Paul Bremer, Brian Michael Jenkins, Jamie Gorlick from the 9-11 Commission, Clinton, Al Gore, uh, Sandy Berger, Leon Panetta, once all these people start sort of echoing this in tandem, you know that it means a shift, not just in policy, but also in mind state, in corporate industry, local law enforcement, all of these things. So I think that there is a nexus between the idea that we created the terrorist threat based on projective identification and this idea of blowback. Because in a certain way, there are legitimate terrorism groups out there who want to cause harm to the United States. Those exist now, and they seem to be growing or on the rise with things like ISIS. And of course, I'm not here to fearmonger you about ISIS, but it's true that through projective identification, we have at least created the perception of a real threat. And I would argue that it's not from our past foreign policy. The idea of game theory that we played with the Soviet Union during the Cold War also ties into this idea of projective identification. By spying on the Soviet Union and committing espionage on them to find out about their nuclear progress, by doing this, we are already poising ourselves and our machinery and our foreign policy and our bureaucracy to essentially create the circumstances and the conditions that may lead to this, or we're helping grease the skids for that. And I'm not using this example because I think that there is a legitimate terrorist threat that poses a real danger to us, I believe that we've been able to create a scenario in where, regardless if, of if 9-11 happened or not, the American policy, foreign policy apparatus, the American government, was already shifting its mechanisms towards a war on terror. And because of that, we would have found a way to do these things without 9-11. Maybe it would have taken longer. I'm sure it would have. PNAC talks about their 
the, a transformative event like a new Pearl Harbor happening to allow this new rebuilding America's military to take place kind of a thing. So they knew that it would require an event like that to, ha to make it fast, quick and effective. And I think also it it's, uh, reminds me of the quantum physics paradox where the observer influences the result. So if there's nobody observing something, then the outcome will be different. In some ways, it reminds me of, of bin Laden's organization, the way Al-Qaeda has gotten hyped up in so much of the media, that when you start paying attention to these groups and you start taking them seriously and treating them like legitimate enemies that are worth using our entire American foreign policy against, then you in some ways start to encourage their existence by exaggerating their power, you are actually making them more powerful. And that again is projected identification. And anyone who's been paying attention to the way this is all unfolded after 9-11 will understand that we have essentially created a self-fulfilling prophecy with things like ISIS, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, these groups, not that they exist because of us, but that they can be perceived as legitimate threats because of us. We have propped them up to the point where they have essentially organically become more powerful as a result. And obviously it comes down to some very simple factors. So when you think about the idea of America versus the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union essentially gave the United States foreign policy apparatus an endless excuse to continue to build up our military, to experiment with new military technologies, to find out new ways to spy on people. Basically, a continual flow of money, an unlimited supply of money seemingly to wage this legitimate, you know, so they say, Cold War. Now, when the Cold War ended, terrorism was the best thing that they could come up with to justify the same flow of funding. And in some ways, even making that funding increase to a level that it wasn't even at during the Soviet Union, to exceed that amount of spending, to expand our spying apparatuses, to expand our sort of doctrine for waging war, um, you know, going into any country with a drone and simply bombing them. All of these things require the presence of a quote-unquote terrorist enemy out there. And if we didn't have that, we would not be able to justify all this. So it's not even really a conspiracy theory to suggest that at the very least, the best case scenario is that the United States government is involved in an intensely symbiotic relationship with these Islamic alleged terrorist groups like ISIS and like Al-Qaeda. You know, you can go back to some of the funding and the weapons given to groups like the Mujahideen, which later turned into the Taliban and then Al-Qaeda or even ISIS. But that's in the past. That's how those groups sort of got their foothold in, in the beginning. But now that they exist, we depend on them for our propaganda and for our justifications and our rationalizations. And I know you're probably thinking, why has he gone off on a almost 20 minute rant at the end of this episode and barely talked about Bill Clinton. Well, I set out to do this episode originally with the intention of showing people how much continuity there is between administrations, regardless of how 
different their rhetoric was, regardless of how the public reacted to them. Because you can argue that a lot of liberals and Democrats and more left-leaning people were completely outraged at George W. Bush after 9-11, but relatively um, okay with the way Bill Clinton waged his presidency. And now that I've laid all of this out to you and shown you how militaristic and how neoconservative in a lot of ways Bill Clinton's policies were, um, you'll see that that's a really part of, pretty much a partisan sort of loyalist belief to have as that Bush was far, far worse than the Clinton presidency. But I think that this episode can serve another purpose. And that purpose is to warn you that a Hillary Clinton presidency in 2016 would be one, very detrimental to having anything that happened on 9-11 or anything revolving around 9-11 be declassified and and or leaked to the public. And the reason for that is that Hillary Clinton will, of course, protect her husband, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton will be living in the White House again if she gets elected. Now think about that. He will actually be living in the White House. And if you don't think he would have any influence over the way her presidency would be, think about just this small aspect of it. Bill Clinton, Al Gore, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, they all testified to the 9-11 Commission um, about whatever perceived failures, uh, you know, were perceived that they failed to act at various times about these bin Laden warnings. They all testified not under oath and in private to the 9-11 Commission. We still have 28 redacted pages of the 9-11 report that was kept secret during the Bush administration and still continues to be secret during the Obama administration. But what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make is that it's clear and obvious that people like Richard Clark, like Bill Clinton, like Al Gore, like George Tennant, hold an enormous amount of responsibility for not preventing the 9-11 attacks. And obviously, George W. Bush, John Ashcroft, Dick Cheney, um, his administration holds an enormous amount of culpability as well. But... If we had another Clinton or Bush in the White House, essentially it would be the worst possible outcome for future 9-11 revelations to come out. Because both parties, the Clinton faction and the Bush faction, are allied in the sense that they want to hide and keep secret and bury and continue to shape the narrative of the 9-11 official story to obfuscate the focus away from their failings around 9-11. Hillary Clinton, of course, is going to continue to hide those facts too, or to make it harder for those facts to come out. Hillary Clinton will protect her husband, period. And we're going to get the truth buried in the same way that we did during the Bush administration. And also, Robert Kagan was a, a foreign policy advisor for Hillary Clinton. And in an ironic sort of twist, someone made a fake Robert Kagan Twitter account recently. A bunch of neoconservatives in D.C. all got tricked into thinking it was a real Twitter account, including Eli Lake, Jamie Kirchick, all those regular, you know, warmongering, psychotic assholes. They got tricked into it, started talking to Robert Kagan, you know, sycophantic neocon policymaker worship. But before the Twitter account got closed down, shut down, which it did really quickly after it got created, this fake Robert Kagan account announced that he was going to be the foreign policy advisor for Hillary's campaign. A bunch of people didn't believe it. A bunch of like the foreign policy think tank people in D.C. were like, what? No, that's this is obviously fake. But interestingly, a bunch of them actually did believe it. And I think that that's pretty telling is that it actually might happen 
that this guy who's behind some of the most effective neoconservative propaganda might actually be advising Hillary Clinton's campaign already. So I hope you enjoyed this first solo podcast of mine, Clinton's War on Terror. The 9-11 Bulletin series on Media Roots Radio will continue. I don't want to spoil what the next two episodes are going to be about. We're working on getting some interviews with some important people who can shed some light on some interesting angles of 9-11 or the war on terror. And we're also going to explore foreign governments and foreign intelligence agencies that were not implicated officially in the 9-11 attacks and sort of spend a whole episode going over all of those and all the facts that we can gather between all the different entities. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care. Mm-hmm.